Welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kautzer, and today we have another entry into the best ofs. Um, This is a special edition podcast, but today we're actually not talking with Scott. Um, We're bringing Marie back. Um, She was actually a part of our last, the last set of the B-Movie Podcast podcast before we took a little break for... 18 months and we're today we're actually as you can tell by the show notes we're actually talking about our top 15s of uh top 15 of the 2010s um marie how are you doing today i'm doing really well thank you very much how are you happy new year yes happy new year happy new year um i'm doing fantastic um it's uh like you know um because you live in the uk and i am in on the west coast in america we're doing this pretty early but i am awake i have had my coffee i've had my caffeine (laughs) and i'm ready to talk about something very exciting which is the 2010s so before we get started with our list and having our conversation about it, I kind of wanted to ask you about how you felt about the shape of cinema in the 2010s, because it's a very str- like I like upon my reflection of it and looking over like my choices. It's a very strange decade of film, at least to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking back at the thing, some of the things that I chose from earlier in the decade mm-hmm. and thinking thinking that not that I'd forgotten them but that they hadn't kept come back to me in the last 10 years and then I looked at my list and thought oh do you know what I really want to revisit that but I think that shows that there's been so much other good stuff that's come along in the in the back half of the decade that I just there just hasn't been time to go and revisit the good stuff from the early part because it's just been all consuming I think it's been a good year a good decade rather for um for films really does it really has it's i feel like for me uh the 2010s were about voices and mm-hmm. very unique distinct voices coming coming to the top um i know that a lot of people think that the 2010s were marred by marvel and the comic the rise of the comic book movie which it was but i think within that i think that filmmakers like there are some really uh, like there's some really powerful filmmaking here where people with very unique voices have found their voice and it wasn't just found it it was like they echoed it and screamed it through the decade mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sometimes to some very shocking and sh- uh, like you know shattering effect to people i mean there's a couple of films that we're going to be talking about today that I've only seen once, but they're so distinctly ingrained in my brain because yeah. of how powerful they are. So I'm really excited to start this. So I wanted to like, okay, so, so the audience understands, uh, our, our listeners understand how this is going to work. Basically, we're going to go from 15 to 1. You're going to go first and then I'm going to go and then we're going to have a discussion about our films. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to hand it over to you for your number 15s. That's a plural because I know we both have plurals in 15, but I want you to start off with what you got, uh, what you chose. Yeah. Okay. So I've cheated with my 15s because, um, I mean, to be honest, the list could be a lot bigger than that. It's quite arbitrary, isn't it? Just Mm. 
choosing a, a number and I thought, yes. well, I'm not going to do one from each year of the decade because that, that's ridiculous. So I ended up with 15, um, a com- combination of Get Out, which was from 2017, and Train to Busan, which was 2016. And although, I mean, I think people might acknowledge that these are good films, maybe great films. I don't know that they've appeared on too many best of the decade lists, but there's a specific reason for me why they're here. And actually, it's your fault, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because uh, I think people who know the type of films I watch and types of films I avoid would probably know that horror and things related to that genre are not generally things that that come to the top of the list. And you challenged me a few years ago uh, to watch them, and I accepted the challenge. Um, and so for the last year, so this year and no, where are we now? 2020. Yes. So last year and the year before, uh, I did uh, set myself a little challenge and watched a handful of uh, what people regard as uh, good horror movies. And these two were, they they really just changed my opinion of what I was watching or what I could watch when it came to horror films. And that's why they're on the list. Absolutely. Um, I love both. Like I love Get Out and I love uh, Train to Busan. Like they're, they aren't in my top 15, but like you said, they're like, it's an arbitrary list. Really. There's Mm -hmm. so many, like for me, it's like, like in any top 10 or top 15 or top 20 list, it's the, the first two are usually like right on target. Like they're number one and number two and you can't mm-hmm. change that. But anything yeah. after that, it's so effable, like ineffable. Like you could at any day it could change. Absolutely. And, and you know, like I, I love the fact that these two are horror movies, but they're beyond horror movies because they use that as like a delivery system. Mm-hmm. Um, get out to talk about the state of the United States and like, I don't like to call it racism because I think that it's a, like it talks a little bit more uh, like about not just not just racism, but like class. It talks about so much. Get Out is so just kind of packed with with uh, with meaning that you can that I think that we've only begun to realize. I mean, because mm-hmm. this is, this movie is officially going to be three years old um, in a couple of weeks. Uh, or yeah, it's three, right? Yeah. Because 2017. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't even seem like that. It literally, it seems like it was released yesterday. Um, yeah. and then train to Busan. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a zombie movie, but it's really about a father, like, uh, <laughs> like a father and a daughter and mainly about the father and, and what it means to be a father, which when I initially saw it, like, I was floored because yeah. it, it doesn't, it doesn't it, like, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where you just kind of watch it and you go, you have to like, people have to see this film for itself to understand the kind of, I would almost call it a magic trick that it plays on you because you, yeah. you don't realize the emotional wallop that you're going to get until the emotional wallop happens. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's yeah. It it did floor me that one. I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting stupid zombies on a train. Yeah, <laughs> zombies and, on I, a train, yeah. snakes on a plane. <laughs> yeah, I really wasn't expecting what I got. And actually, and now 
I think what, what I've got from these two films is to learn that my expectations should be different going to watch these. And actually what's really interesting, I think is, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on as well, is um, a lot of the, a lot of films coming out of South Korea in the last 10 years probably are very, very interesting in the way yes. that they, not necessarily horror, but tension and uh, psychological comments on society on you know i i think it's um a very interesting part of the world for for films at the moment and um yeah absolutely i, I really wanted to, to get them in the list so that's why they're sharing a spot and the fact that you've cheated as well makes me feel okay about it so <laughs> yeah and i cheat i cheated a lot on this list is as, as if people have not read the list um they're gonna find out on this podcast <laughs> um so my number 15 is also a cheat like i was saying but i feel like there's a reason for this because um num my number 15th is uh gareth edward or uh, gareth evans the raid and the raid 2 and the reason why they're it's it's merged together is because when you watch these two films that amount to about four and a half hours of of filmmaking, it's all one story. Like, I know that a lot of people say that, but like and I made a comparison to like the Godfather and Godfather part two, but in a way that it, it organically because the way that the raid one ends and the way two begins. It literally ends and begins 15 minutes apart from one another. Oh, is that right? So I've not seen the second one. I have seen the first one. Okay, yes. So it literally takes place 15 minutes after. So like um, as Rama, the main character, has uh, the main bad guy, he's picked up literally like like when we when we when the movie opens, we see something that happens that we didn't see happen on screen. I won't ruin it for uh, the people that yeah. like you that haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. But then he is actually picked up with the bad guy that he has in tow, that he's going to like clean corruption up. And then mm -hmm. that's where that one starts. And the, the guy must be exhausted. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the joys of watching this film is seeing, because it's also like the, one of the, the things that the, one of the beautiful things about the, about the raid too is that it expands it like the Godfather Part Two, uh, something that we've talked about off offline recently. Um, just the movie itself, but mm -hmm. how how the Godfather Part Two takes things and like it makes it it deepens it 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 makes the corruption and the crime that they're dealing with a, on a bigger scale. The Raid Two does the same thing. Um, but it also tells a story that instead of it being contained over a day, it's contained over years. Oh, and okay. yeah. there's a there's a very specific style of film that it is like, you know, where where the raid is a siege film like uh, the raid two is truly a crime film. Like it's a it's like a like a mafia crime film with crime fathers like and different gangs going against one another, but done in that like in the way that the raid was done so it's it's martial arts uh gunplay action um like think of like like honestly think of the godfather part 2 on steroids and if they had <laughs> if they had machetes and uh, like the like like it, like they could do aerobatic martial arts and wow. i think like to me the raid 
the raid and the raid tomb, the reason why I chose it is because it's the apex of 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 like modern ahead of its uh, ahead of the cusp action filmmaking Mm -hmm. um you watch this stuff and it's it's the kind of visceralness that happens when you're when you're first getting introduced into cinema and you start seeing some really crazy action like it's that visceral punch that you're not expecting um and it's really really good filmmaking (laughs) like gareth evans really definitely knows the kind of films the kinds of films that fans have not seen that you that when you after you see it you go yeah i wanted to see that for a long time mm-hmm. there's a 20 minute like in the raid 2 there's a 20 minute prison riot oh. that is incredible incredible and I will tell this much. I will say this much. If you guys are like, if you guys are fans, like, okay, so my favorite film of the tw- uh, the two thousands was mm-hmm. A Prophet. Um, oh yeah, it, yeah. And if you guys are fans of that film, um, I think that Gareth Evans in that twenty minute prison section really kind of was like it's almost like a love letter to a prophet. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you guys have seen the film and I mean, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that you guys have seen the raid too, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, that's, uh, that's, that's my, uh, that was my number 15. Did you have anything to add about the raid? I mean, like, I didn't really talk about the raid. I talked about the raid too, but yeah, I mean, I really loved it. Um, again, not, not the kind of thing I would or would have gone to, but I did see it shot. I think I saw it on, on DVD not mm-hmm. long after it had been out and and i really like i was quite surprised by what it was and surprised that i liked it i don't know why i never got to see the second one but I'm, i'll add it to my watch list and then um catch up with you absolutely absolutely i'm dying to know what you think of it just mm-hmm. because as somebody who loves the godfather and the godfather part two i think that this is going to be something that you're like whoa i did not expect that from okay. that kind of homage <laughs> so so do you recommend that i go back and start with and rewatch the raid one to begin with yeah i think it would be a good idea just because yeah, it kind of like it, it said it like it like resets you to like you know what you're going to be expecting because the raid 2 is definitely more of the same kind of action but elevated um okay. as any good sequel should be okay i'll right. add it to the list absolutely so mm-hmm. what was your number 14 Maria? so for number 14 and from this point up to number three as you say these could uh, you could wake up tomorrow and they could all be shuffled around Mm -hmm. um but i've gone for under the skin which is 2013 so uh, this is scarlett johansson prowling the streets of glasgow in a a white transit van uh (laughs) picking up people and we don't know why and we don't know what's going on and and i'm not sure that i still completely understand what happens at the end of the film but i don't care it was such a, a mesmeric experience in the cinema. And I, when, there's a scene in it where she is in a shopping centre, shopping mall, mm-hmm. and she goes down an escalator and she is seeing the other shoppers in a different way. Yep. And I came out of the cinema screen and had to go down an escalator oh. to get... <laughs> And I'm going down the escalator and suddenly all these people are passing me. And I found myself thinking, 
are are they do they look different what's going on it was the weirdest experience that i had for quite a while after i'd seen that film so that's uh, that stayed with that's one that i haven't watched in quite a few years and do want to see again but it just the atmosphere i kind of don't want to see it again because it was so good the first time yeah I just don't want to spoil it um and the soundtrack in that is absolutely incredible beautiful beautiful music haunting haunting yeah. um yeah. and not like like almost like it's the like like uh, this is also like just so that everybody knows this is my number six this is like we'll get back to my other number six because I also had a tie there, but um, th- this was my number six. Um, Jonathan Glazer is he's he's something else. Like he is a true artist. Um, the director of Under the Skin. He's only made three films. Um, I'm not sure when we're like nobody knows when we'll get another one from him. He's a vi- music video director by mm-hmm. trade, but that soundtrack. Um, I recently rewatched it. Um last year uh just mm-hmm. during the year because it's it, it's it, like you know occasionally i'll go back to a film just i'll have an inching for it and um i got a blu-ray really cheap of it it was like 3.99 which would be mm. like would be like like five uh five pounds maybe mm-hmm. for for you guys um Oh no, no! Actually, it'd be less than that. It'd be like it'd be like yeah, that would, yeah, would have yeah. been rude to have left it in the store, really. Exactly. It? Yeah. No, no, absolutely. It was like literally two. Like it would be two euro. Your your like. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I have to do this. So like I rewatched it, and the soundtrack, like the soundtrack, feels like it's the voice of the alien's internal monologue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I could almost like because of the way that it ends, and it's a very striking ending. Like, yeah. Um, I think that you put uh, you put the, you you put it so succinctly, like you're not sure what's happening, and that's something that I want to forewarn people about, which is is that this is not a film that you get right away. Like, mm-hmm. it, you could like I would suggest letting it wash over you. Don't try to get to any kind of meaning out of it right away. Let it sink into you, like. Like, I know it's, I'm like, uh, Marie's probably like looking at me going sinking in because there's certain moments in the film um, that's handled with like sinking into sludge. (laughs) But you, (laughs) but you literally have to let it happen. You do. do. To let it overwhelm you because it is an overwhelming experience. And um, the thing, the, the moment the moment that hooked like the moment that made like that I'll never forget from this film is there's a midsection moment where she picks up a a um a man who has a facial disfigurement mm-hmm. and i mean he's gone on to he's gone on to um be in other films he's actually becoming quite a like you know quite a well-known actor within the film community and working he is, and also uh, in the UK, he's doing a lot of uh, documentary presentations as well on um, on disabilities and disability rights and, and attitudes to disability. So he's kind of gone in, in two directions, the acting that's, and the kind of factual presenting that he's doing as well. That's great. That That's amazing because mm. he is so – he 
he is the broken soul of this film. Yeah. Like, yeah. he really is. And the moments between him and Scarlett Johansson, from what I understand, like, when I find a film that, like, I, I think that you're probably the same way, Marie, where, where you find a film that grips you by the throat or by the heart, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you instantly want to know more about it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, when I heard, like when I saw this, like, I like my initial experience was like, okay, so how good can it be? Cannes has a lot of movies that it comes out of because it premiered at Cannes. And a lot mm -hmm. of people say a lot of stuff, 20-minute standing ovations. I'm like, I'd get tired after two minutes. I'm yeah, happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I saw it and I saw this midsection, I was like, I don't even know. It's so real and raw. And it breaks it literally it broke me like that that entire wow. moment just broke me and i sat there just kind of not numb but stunned at uh -huh. this film and i i ended up like reading about it and a lot of the the lot of the sections within the 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 van are her not so much picking up people but um jonathan glazer having men ready for her to pick up and her not mm -hmm. knowing how it was going to go or who these guys were going to be and how they were going yeah. to interact. Yeah. And that moment when she picks him up is all it's, it's not scripted. It's just literally, she has an idea of what she's supposed to say and what she's supposed to do, but she's not everything in that moment is so real. And it kind of gives you like, it almost is like a mirror into Scarlett Johansson at that mm -hmm. very moment and like i said it broke me and yeah it's a stark like it's it's a very striking film and i'm glad that you chose it because it was one of those films like when i saw your list and i was working on my list i was like oh wow that's <laughs> it's such a great film and to be perfectly honest i feel like it's a great uk film because like i feel like i got a sense of place mm -hmm. and a like i could feel the cold i could feel the wet <laughs> uh, oh yeah yeah it's, it's so okay for you speaking from california yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um number 14 under the skin did you have anything else that you wanted to say about it because it's such a it, it's such a a vast it, it, film it is good and it draws you in in such a way that we were talking about the soundtrack that there's a point at which it stops being music and, and it's just, it's a sound. Mm -hmm. It's breathing, but without realizing it, I was breathing in time with it. Yes. When it, when it gets you on that level, I mean, it, you're in, there's nothing. You're hooked. You can't go anywhere. Yeah. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So my number 14 is yeah, I've not seen this. So okay. Over to you. <laughs> so my number 14 is a series of, like, what I noticed about my list was that, man, there was a lot of 2010 films that were really good. Ah. Be because I included quite a few of them. And this one was from 2010. It was released in 2010 here in America. Uh -huh. um, though I think that it came out, like, December in 20, uh, 2009 in uh, South Korea. Okay. And so this, uh, this is a film called I saw the devil by Ji Woon Kim. Now the hook, like I, I tell everybody what the hook is and the hook is basically James Bond versus Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so basically, I, I'll give a little bit more of a breakdown. Which uh, what it what it is is that um, there's a there's a um, South Korean uh, special agent that is working really late one night, and he's on the phone with his pregnant wife. Um, tragedy strikes um, when she gets a flat tire, and the then a man pulls up that has um a like a like a service truck and he's mm-hmm. going to go ahead and fix the tire she's like the the guy who's fixing the tire is actually a serial killer and not just any kind of serial mm-hmm. killer like a Hannibal Lecter style serial killer Ew. and he kills the agent's wife this mm-hmm. is the beginning of a revenge tale that is about one-upmanship and it's more like i like i try to tell people like yes it is there are some very striking and hard moments it it's more of a horror film it's like a horror action but it's more emphasis on horror um but it is probably one of my favorite genre films of the last 10 years because mm. it is so well executed. Um, it's not, it, it would be exactly what you would think of if James Bond lost one of his, like, you know, lost his wife to a, <laughs> to Hannibal Lecter and both men extremely smart, extremely sophisticated, but just different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Now, what makes this even better is is the is the actors that they get to they get to play the respective James Bond and Hannibal Lecter roles. If you're familiar with Korean South Korean film uh, films, uh, Byung Hung Lee plays the James Bond role, which makes absolute sense. He's you know uh, like um, most people will know him from the GI Joe films. Um, but, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Now. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, but I mean, huge star in in South Korea. The bigger star is um, Ming Sik Choi, who played Old Boy in Old Boy. Um, oh, I love him. Yes, and he plays the Hannibal Lecter role. Oh, it's it is a film that is just it, like you once you see it. You can't unsee it because it is it is a very hard hitting film. I'm not gonna lie to anybody. Like this is like when you're talking horror, this is closer to the extreme side because of because of where because of how far they take the the violence. And mm-hmm. but if you're willing to go there, you're gonna see a film that is just that's as intense and as tension filled as anything that you you've ever seen. And Mm. I really, really, really love this film. Like I, like I, like um, it's one of the films that me and Spencer had bonded over Spencer Howard, um, who used to run film dispenser. He now has a new website, uh, Supermassive pop. And um, we bonded over this film because he loves South Korean films as much as I do. And, Mm -hmm. This was one of those films that we were like, I'm like, have you seen? And he's like, oh, yes. And then it's like, <laughs> it's like, guys, dude, dude, dude. Um, So, yeah, but this is this is probably one of the best genre films 
I've seen in a long time. And I just recently rewatched about a couple of years ago and like two years ago, and it still works. It's still an amazing film. There's the way that it ends is it's really funny because it ends not in a big splash, but in a very intimate way, but it's perfectly, it's exactly what you want from the film. Because at first you think that you don't, that you want the big action scene ending, but it's, you don't like eventually when it, how it ends in this house um, and the way that they play it, it's, it's just perfect. So I might have to stop talking to you if you keep trying to persuade me so well to watch horror films. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's like, I know it's like, what, what is up with, what is up with that? Like taunting you with these horror films, which yeah. like, I know that you're gonna have to watch in broad daylight. Like that's the whole yeah. thing is like, <laughs> like, and especially this one, this one is like, this one is like real life scary. Like, like that's the thing. Like I like, that's what gets me it. Like, you know, demons, all that stuff. Eh. I, I mean, you know, it's like the real life monsters. And this one is like, like this one is definitely like real life monsters. So, okay. um, uh, but everybody can find it. It's still in, actually it's still in print on Blu-ray. Um, I've been uh, like I've been remiss by telling about people about accessibility, but everything that we've talked about so far is is very readily available. Um, yeah. which brings us to uh, I, which I'm super excited about your number thirteen. Okay, well, talking of real life monsters, uh, I've gone for Nightcrawler. Uh, 2014 and don't before you get at me for having to include Jake Gyllenhaal on the list um, this is a role that Jake Gyllenhaal should have won an Oscar for uh, and wasn't even nominated and I don't understand it and the film is just it's he's a monster yes and and yet you know what's really interesting is looking at this is 2014 or 2020 and you look at the news channels and you look at what's there and how it gets there and you just think he's not on his own is he there's uh there's so much of that kind of thing around and i think that's what makes it frightening he's creepy everything is insincere it's manipulative and it's just so twisted and tense um the whole thing it's because it's at night Mm -hmm. everything feels so claustrophobic and it's it's i watched this again not so long ago in fact earlier earlier this year and it it's just yeah it's one that you i can't watch too often in succession because it's just so creepy but it's uh so good such a good film it is um and i will tell you a great la film like i know that sounds Ah. i know that sounds nightmarish and you're like ugh, but it's a great LA film. It gets, it gets the like when you drive around in LA that early or that late, depending mm-hmm. on what you talk, like how you talk. Um, the 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 thing that the film does so well is that it gets the visual look of LA at that time of night. Oh, okay, that's um, good. It is so hard, like it's so hard as an Angelino when you watch films that are supposedly set in LA and they don't get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, because then it just looks like Canada. <laughs> like, to, like well, half the time it is, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but Nightcrawler is not so... that there's anything. There's nothing wrong with Canada. No, I love no, Canada. <laughs> no. I I love Canada too. Just, just... <laughs> <laughs> um, I love Toronto. I'm I'm my yeah. m- like we've talked about. There's 
um, like there's a plan possibly in place that I'm going to try to get to Canada during a certain very specific time of year. I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But this film is so distinctly L.A. And it's also it, it's very it's about specifics, which I love is like it's about a specific type of person. Nightcrawler is not just like a creepy name. It's a it, it's a mm-hmm. type of person that. Uh, that this film is about and specifically Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, he's amazing. Like he physically transformed he himself. Yeah, yeah, he did. He, he doesn't. He... Go ahead. I'm so sorry. I was going to say, and he did this. Um, I can't remember if it was just before or after uh, Southpaw. Yeah, he did it. He did it right before Southpaw. Yeah. Because so, I mean, those two extremes are just. Ugh. I know. Um, And like, the first place I know, uh, like it's bad of me to 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 go this late into the game on Rizamed, but uh, oh, no, no, I was going to mention him. Yeah, he definitely needs a mention. Yeah, Rizamed in an almost wordless performance that's just amazing. Yeah, like after the movie, the things that you remember are Rizamed and Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, yeah. like they're just they're like, and the way that it ends, oh, oh, oh. yeah. Um, it is a truly, uh, it is a truly great film, and I'm really glad that you included it because it was also on my list of like I have a hundred, I had a hundred and one uh, films that I like. You know, if you go to my, um, if you go to my uh, my my list at the beginning of it, I put a link to my IMDb list of the hundred and one. Mm-hmm things i called it down from 500 to 101 and then wow. <laughs> from there it was it, it, like i was working on it most of december <laughs> uh so but it, this was definitely on the 101 um because it was such a oh god it's such a good film and i mean a great guilt like you're right like it just proves to me that like like sometimes the oscars get it right but a lot of times they get it very wrong yeah um, because i will say something like uh, we're we're about to see like we're on the eve of the Oscars. We're probably going to see Joaquin Phoenix get nominated for the Joker. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I'll probably get a lot of flack for this, but I think that that Joaquin Phoenix stole a lot of his performance from Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler. Oh, see, I hadn't even thought of that. I was just so angry watching Joker that I didn't want to think about it after I'd seen it. So yep. I blocked it from my mind. But but really. everything that you think about the way like his his climb, mm, yeah, the, yeah, everything about it like his climb, his rivalries, his sycophantic obsessions, his, even the way that he looks in the film, the way that the the way that Jake Killenhall looks. I mean, it is extremely similar. Mm. Um, just another reason why I'm not a big fan of Joker. <laughs> No, you've made me even more angry about it now. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I did not mean to do that, Marie. <laughs> um, so <laughs> my number 13 is um, is another 2010 movie. Um, it is Winter's Bone. Um, the, uh, the Southern Gothic um, noir crime film that introduced the world to Jennifer Lawrence. Mm. It did. It did. Um, what I love about this film is a lot of crime films talk about the crime and the thrill of the crime, but no one talks about 
a lot of times people don't talk about the reasons why people do what they do and the desperation that is that is inherent in crime or in in something that causes somebody to do something out of the ordinary mm-hmm. and um this film kind of tackles that in a really really um stark way in the same way that any other crime film or mystery film handles their topic but it it handles it with an extra layer um and i think that that has to do with deborah granick i hate saying like being a female uh, being a female filmmaker but i think that that informs a lot of this movie because um re jennifer lawrence's character is doing everything that she's doing trying to find her father um, who was out on bail, who, like, like who everybody says has skipped bail. And that money that they used to get him out because he got caught uh, making meth um, is their life, their lifeblood. Her mother, who's essentially useless, and her and her sisters. So it's up to Reed to, to find this in a certain amount of time. And in a like and tread territory that could get her killed and i'm not going to say anything more than that about that particular aspect what i am going to say is that when you watch this film this is the instant that you like you you watch this film and you know this is the reason why jennifer lawrence became a huge star yeah that's Um, right and she was so young as well 19 and she feels like she's been around for forever yeah. And she's still young now, and that's because she was so young when she did this. It's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a a powerful John Hawks performance um, mm-hmm. that, that netted him an Oscar nomination. Sometimes they do get it right. Sometimes they really oh, I, do. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, wow. Yeah, he was good. He was so good. And like I said, like this, this film, like... I know that they got back together. Uh, Deborah Granick and Jennifer uh, Jennifer Lawrence got back together for another film. I'm <laughs> I was not impressed with the film. I think that there was a lot of studio interference with it because it was one of those. It was a Miramax film, or I'm not I'm sorry, a Weinstein Company film, and we're going to leave it at that. Okay, because uh, that's the film that is the one that's in quite like that movie is the is the movie that. Well, I mean, it's the only movie that Harvey Weinstein worked on with Jennifer Lawrence and like, you know, like it's the whole like all of the stuff, all of the rumors that you've heard about that particular incident is because of that film or is that mm. over that film, which is really sad. But I mean, at the end of the day, it is it it's not it's not a good film as it is. I don't know if there's a director's cut or what, but mm. Winter's Bone is an amazing piece of filmmaking. And I I just I rewatched it. um I rewatched it in 2018 because uh, I thought I was going to I thought it was going to be a part of like Marie, you know, um, like I did a This is America where we talked about yeah. different films about America. I actually thought about doing this film um, instead of Thelma and Louise, but I opted for Thelma and Louise because I felt like it's a like Thelma and Louise is like I like what it I like the fact that. Thelma and Louise is an American film directed by a British director. Like there's something about that, that, that is wholly American. Like, you know, and I didn't know if I had enough to talk about, about this film, but re talking about it now, it's almost like I've earmarked it for the podcast again, because at some point uh-huh. I'm going to have to re come back to this because there's so much to talk about with this film. 
That sounds good. Yeah. Absolutely. And I probably will have you on on that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, that one? Uh, Winter's Bone. So let's go to, uh, it, uh, like, you know, talk of family. I think that's a perfect segue into your number 12, which I'm so happy that, that you, you chose this film. Yeah. I mean, in, in one way, I could have had a whole 10 films from this director, but yes. I've gone in the end with Shoplifters, um, Corey Ada's 2018 uh, Cannes Festival winning film, um, just because I think... I think of all of the of his work, and I'm a big fan of, of him as a director, but I think of all of his work, Shoplifters kind of pulls together all of the threads that we've seen in previous films. And it's um, uh, looking at a, a found family, if you like. There, are, there yeah. are some blood connections between this family that we focus on, but um, not all of them. And it, it's how they are as supportive as loving towards each other more so in certain respects than than true blood families can be when they are on the margins and in need of that support that society is not not giving them and it's um Corrie Ada is is has a knack of drawing the best from child performers in a way that they are not pretentious or precocious they are just natural little children and i think probably part of that is casting the correct parents if you like um and then forming that family and i think shoplifters is just a brilliant combination of there's some fantastic joyful moments in the first part the first two thirds and then things change and things unravel and yet you're still not in any doubt at the end that despite all the horrible stuff that's happened, they still care for each other. And it's, yeah. I, I just love the the director's work and, and I've chosen this one to go in my list. And, do you know, I, I'm thinking now, why is it only 12? Why is it not higher? But it is what it is. Absolutely. And like I said, always remember one through three are usually yeah. your, yeah. your, your, your solid ones and then everything else can change. Um, this 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 movie broke my heart <laughs> it just breaks your heart like when you watch it like and it's the thing is is that <laughs> you know where my heart started to break is the fireworks scene mm, oh yeah yeah the fireworks scene like like i i think about like when i think about that film i think about that moment and even now i'm just kind of like it 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 like it hits you in in a way that i think that all great films about families should mm -hmm. um, because there's both joy and pain in family. Yeah. Both the yeah. found and the blood. Um, mm -hmm. I was going like, <laughs> we're going to be talking about another film later and it makes the perfect. I, I think I would start with this and then go on with the other film that's about family because it's a, ba mm -hmm. it's a great, like Asian cinema one-two punch of mm -hmm. like what I love about Asian cinema. Um, uh, but it's, it's actually quite, it's quite interesting that, that I feel like this is the top of his game. This is as good as um, he has gotten the mm -hmm. same way that another uh, filmmaker that we're going to be talking about later is at the top of his game. Yeah. And it's about yeah. family. And it's about yes. a family of, like, I hate using a family of scamps, but they're scamps, con men, <laughs> criminals. Uh, 
but the thing is, is again, like we talk, like we talked about, um, uh, about, uh, with winner's bone about how desperation mm. forms crime in a lot of ways. And this is yeah. such an empathetic portrait of a family in a way that you would never expect. And especially if I think that, I think the Japanese cinema gets a bad rap for being very cold and calculating and distanced. This is not the case. No, this, no. Corridor is he, far from that. Oh no, absolutely. And I was going to ask yeah. you about something because it's the 2020s and we're, we're, wow, we're headed into the 2020s, Marie. I cannot believe it. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you, have you seen his newest? I don't even know if it's out in the, uh, no, out, it's, okay. It's on my anticipated list and it's going to be his first film in English. Well, not in Japanese. Not in Japanese, yes. I'm saying because I'm sure there's going to be kind of English-French crossover there, isn't there? So it's called The Truth uh, and features Catherine Deneuve, um, Juliette Binoche, is that right? Yep. And Ethan Hawke. So it's a very interesting collection. And I know when he left Cannes after winning this, and they said to him, you know, what do you want? Who would you like to work with? And he said, Catherine Deneuve. Yeah. And then he announces he's doing a film with her. And that that just made my day. Yes. So I can't wait to see it. I'm a bit tentative because I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. But I can't wait to see it. Absolutely. I, I, I wanted to see it at AFI, but I could not get in. Uh-huh. Like, because of the fact that it was in, like, so, <laughs> so I go to AFI and I see that it's playing. It makes me super happy. And I'm like, okay, I have to make this the top of my list. Mm-hmm. I get out of a theater. I go to try to go see it. It's in one of the smallest theaters. Oh. Yes. Because, like, I think that it was in one of the bigger theaters because they thought they were going to be able to get Benoche. Uh, like oh, they were supposed okay. to get Benoche for a Q&A. But when yeah. she didn't. Um, they relegate it to a smaller theater. What gave me hope and joy is seeing how long the line was to see the film. Yeah. What disappointed me was that I instantly knew, I knew the number, I like, you know, when you go to a, uh, like, um, I've been to the AFI for the last four years. So I know exactly what the number count is on certain theaters. And so like, I went to the back of the line and I got my ticket, and it was triple the, or it was double the number in that theater. So there was no, no way I was getting in. Um, <laughs> so so I, I'm looking at release dates here now, and the UK, oh, and the US have the same release date, which is March 20th. Oh, okay. That is, that's exciting. That's definitely exciting. It is. So it's also released in a couple of other places in Europe earlier in March. Okay. Um, but and it's it's in France on the 22nd of January so i'm guessing from that point we'll start seeing a little bit of coverage absolutely uh, from that point but yeah that's uh oh yes yes exciting <laughs> um so i uh, like unlike in the us um uh, we are very late um to the the um film game Mm. so shoplifters is this is the film that's most readily available everything Mm. else you guys are gonna have to probably import in because i've imported in i like there's a couple of box sets that they have like actually in the uk you guys have some box sets i've been oh good i think bfi brought one out just last year which had four 
of his early works and one of them had been almost impossible to get um so that's a fairly recent box set that bfi released that's the one that i have yeah that's the one i have mabarossi and um is it still walking i can't remember what's in it now but Yeah. yeah Yeah. Uh, I'm actually looking at it from a really far away oh, okay. and I can kind of <laughs> see it. Um, and then uh, there's a couple of others uh, all in the UK. You can get them. They're readily available. If you watch Shoplifters, um, which is readily available, and you find yourself struck by his work, yeah, please do a deep dive. The, yeah. Like I feel like he really needs more support in the US um, because it's just not there. Um so yeah, no, absolutely. You can find this, like I said, you can find shoplifters readily available on streaming um, in the U.S. or even physical media. Um, my number twelve. My number twelve is um, is Ava DuVernay's Selma, and I am so pleased you chose this one. It's so I re- I I did a secret rewatch of this <laughs> just because <laughs> there's. Like it's not even a secret rewatch. I just did a rewatch of this tw- uh, this year um, after I saw. Well, it's actually a kind of a secret because I um, I watched her Netflix miniseries um, mm. with unfortunately without Christina, my my fiance, and I don't know if she would be mad or not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm saying it's a secret. Uh, she doesn't listen to the podcast. I mean, I hope she doesn't because she's gonna get super pissed off at me when she finds oh. out. But it prompted me to re go back to watch Selma. Because I remember, I remember liking Selma a lot, but I didn't have the same reaction um, as I did uh, to uh, when they see us, um, her Netflix series. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I rewatched it this year, and <laughs> I I must have been off my game because. Uh, it like I was like this this film is just wonderful in so many ways, but is also so harrowing. Like I, it's this mixture of like humanity. Like she does like Ava DuVernay does this this thing where it's almost impossible. I feel like to do one of the hardest films, one of the hardest type of films to make is a biopic. Mm. It's because it's just it's so formulaic. And she takes that biopic. She's she's so good at the biopic because she puts it into an she puts an uh, she puts it into an entry like she gets an entry point in that is so uniquely humane and like in a way like it makes them it, it takes a move it, it makes it makes Martin Luther King a human being which. If you if you really think about it, how hard is it to make somebody like him or Lincoln into somebody who's a flesh and blood person? Um, and that's the thing that's the magic trick to me is, is that, um, I mean, David Oelio, wow. Like, mm-hmm. it just, it struck me so hard. Like, everything in that film, from the buildup to when the first march happens, it's just... It's this, it's this thing that I cannot, like I, like I, like I, like I was, um, I was trying to talk to somebody about it, um, and how certain movies are really hard to review because they're so emotionally resonant, 
that yeah. you end up finding that you're talking about the emotions that you're feeling rather than the filmmaking itself. Uh-huh. Because when you talk about the filmmaking itself, it sounds so cold and distant when the movie is not anything that that's Selma to me. Yeah. It's pure. It's a pure humane like it and like let us be very real about this like the moments when when things go wrong they go terribly wrong but there's this humanity at the core of it that i think that ava duvernay gets to and she does in all of her work whether it's something as crazy as um a wrinkle in time or Mm -hmm. something um something as harrowing as selma she gets to the core of of human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Um, That's good. so uh, what did you th- like? I mean, like we've not talked about Selma ever. So like, I was wondering what your thoughts of it as somebody from the UK that's looking at this from that filter. Yeah. I, I think what's interesting is because we had a lot of, um, publicity about it as well because of the, the actor playing the part mm-hmm. was, is a British actor. And so, you know, there was conversations about whether could they not have found an American actor and all this. Well, I don't know. Um, but you have to trust Ava DuVernay to, to make that decision. She's, you know, she knows him as an actor. Mm-hmm. And I think he was, I mean, with uh, having said all that, he was so strong and solid because, I mean, that Martin Luther King was not without his imperfections. He's, yes. he's, he may be legendary, but he wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think teasing that out and seeing the man, as well as seeing the legend and mm-hmm. the the icon, is probably a better word than legend, um, was something that was very skillfully done by Duvernay. I think it it, it could have turned into just a you know look at this amazing person and and into that but actually it's not it i think it, going back to the, the ground level and you see other people and you see what happens to other individuals as part of the struggle um i think that made it quite a powerful film for me um and i'm, I'm guessing in the uk as well obviously i can't speak for others but mm-hmm. it, it, it's 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 that kind of historical uh, perspective, historical context from the uh, the from Duvernay's perspective, I think, and what she brought to it made it a very powerful film. Absolutely, and what I feel like is the it is the power like is the PowerPoint to where or like where the delivery system in which she gives us the information that that Martin Luther King is not like the 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 pious like mm. like man that's on the statue i think it's brilliant because yeah. it gives us a dual layer thing where it's like like i don't want to ruin it for people that haven't seen it which like if you haven't seen it wow i mean come on what are you doing this is not mm-hmm. it is it's not homework but it kind of is you kind of owe it to yourself to see this but the way that she does it and the way that she frames everything with um with the hard text if you know what i mean Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that helps in a in a great way in the way that she does it, so it doesn't feel so like, oh yeah, here's the moment where 
I'm going to make Martin Luther King look like a, like a normal person. It's just, it's all organic. Um, mm. So yeah, um, I, I'm really like, I, I'm really in love with this film and I've only seen it twice. Like this is another one of those films that it's, it's one of those films that you don't actively watch again and again, but when yeah. the, when the occasion calls for it, when you watch it, you are starkly reminded of how good of a film it is. It is a powerful mm-hmm. film. So, mm-hmm. and uh, to be perfectly honest, it got snubbed at the Oscars again. It did. It did. That was shocking, but you know, it's only the Oscars. What do they know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, speaking of Oscars and what do they know? Um, yeah. So, why don't you talk to me a little bit about your number 11? Yeah, I chose in 2017's Call Me By Your Name oh. um, for a number of reasons. Um, uh, that last shot? Yeah, that 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 was incredible. Oh, I, don't, yes. I mean, I know Chalamet is still only young and has a long way to go, but he he's going to have to do something to beat that last scene, I have to say. Oh, gosh, yes. But, I mean, it just, it like Guadagnino... Like he does, he does that right, doesn't he? Like he, yeah. like that's he's a specialist in that kind of yeah. romantic longing. Um, I, it's yeah. I mean, uh, so I, I took it upon my okay. So like after Little Women, uh huh. Like so, I've never been a, a Chalamet fan. Like I haven't. No. Uh, we we've talked about that. Um, so, <laughs> so like. I saw Call Me By Your Name. It was, I thought it was good. Um, but there was something I think that was getting in the way for me. But then yeah. I watched Little Women and he completely changed my mind. He's like one of the, ah. two, he's one of the two things in that film that really I fell in love with. It was him and Florence Pugh. And... I was going to say, if you didn't say Florence Pugh was the other one, I was going to be really cross. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like, so, like, let, let's have a little talk because you've you've seen Little Women, right? I have seen it, yeah. Okay, okay. So, the thing that makes this, like, the best Little Women adaptation for me is the fact that Laurie chooses the right girl. Like, or chooses the right, like, when he falls in love with, with, um, who is it that, well, it's not Joe, I can't think of, it's um, not, it's Amy. not Meg. Huh? Amy, she's Amy. Called. Yeah, yeah, Amy. Yeah. When he falls in love with Amy and he goes after Amy and the whole thing, how um, how Greta Gerwig sets it up so that Lori isn't a consolation prize for Amy and Amy isn't a consolation prize for Lori. Mm-hmm. My heart, like, like it just, when they kiss, I, okay, so like I went to, like I went to a screening with um, Kristen. Like, you know, you know, Kristen Lopez. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we went to a screening together. And in that moment, I literally l- laughed in the best way possible, but also clapped. And I was the only one that did that. <laughs> because, like, and it just, like, Chalamet finally got me. Like, I got Chalamet. And so, like, it forced me to go back to Call Me By Your Name, which... Mm made me reassess that movie and see what everybody is talking about with this kid. I mean, cause he is a kid. He's like 21 or 22. Yeah. He like, is. Um, yeah. but like, like, he, like, it's just, it's weird because it's like, you see how good he is and you're like, that's not right. That really isn't. But, <laughs> um, Q 
can you talk about some of the reasons why you chose uh you chose this particular um this particular coming of age romance yeah well i think there's there's something very personal for me as well in that when i was somewhere between the ages of the two characters mm-hmm. so i think in the film i don't know is one sixteen and one's 24 something like that yeah. so it's something like that and when i was about 21 in the 80s um i was living in italy oh and there is something about the atmosphere of those hot days being young and being in a different country and seeing attractive people and you know i was it was the first time i'd lived away from from england and there was something in capturing that that whole atmosphere that had me almost immediately <laughs> so that was one of the things that i think probably didn't have the same impact on anybody who's a different age from me or who mm-hmm. didn't who's never been to italy or didn't live there so for that it was it just wrapped me up straight away and i was transported back into those you know horrible horrible and brilliant relationships that you you think is wonderful and then it's not and <laughs> do they like me and do they not and you know oh, yeah so um <clears throat> for that reason that was one of them Absolutely. i think and I think also then you look at, I thought the, the choice of music is great. I loved, I love that, but that's probably part of the nostalgia mm-hmm. for me as well. Um, and I think I had just kind of got realized that Army Hammer has potential to be a good actor because I'd seen him in some stuff where he really wasn't, I don't know if he was miscast or if the films weren't right. And then I saw him in this and thought, you know what? No, in fact, I think it was, was it Nocturnal Animals? Where he has a small role. Yes, very small role, but very pivotal. Yeah. And I saw that and thought, oh, I want to see more of that character. What? Who's he? Um, because that character came in and disappeared and, you know, had, had a... Mm-hmm. And I mean the character, not the actor. And then I thought, oh, okay, maybe that's, that's Army Hammer doing that. So then, and I think in this, he was really, really well cast. I think he was brilliant. And the other thing that I like, in fact, it's the... It was the father was um, Michael Stuhlberg, wasn't it? Who played yep. that again? What? What? I thought, oh, if he could be my dad. I would love him to be my dad in the eighties. That would have been great. Yeah. That speech. That. Yeah. That, like, I mean, a lot of fathers are never like, like that's like a dream father. Like, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. I, it, it was such a great performance um, that and by the end of it and then you get to the end of it and you get that scene at the end of it that's it i'm i'm in that you have me for life on that yep. yeah definitely that that final scene is amazing like yeah. i mean like rewatching it i was like wow yeah the longing the song mm. i'm not going to ruin anything for anybody because i i can guarantee you just by the by the filmic imprint it it, it hasn't been seen enough so yeah. um I really want to leave that for for people to really and it's not like to to me it's like like it's a romance but it's like there's another film on your list um that's also a that's kind of a romance mm-hmm. but it's more it's not about the romance it's about the character 
Yeah. And I love that so much when romance can be in, like when romance, uh, when movies about about falling in love are not about the falling in love, but are about the characters and what they learn. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely, oh God, it's such a good, beautiful moment, that ending moment. If, the, if there were moments of, of the 2000s that I would pick, I would probably make a good case that that could be the top one. Wow. Because, because of like, you know, just everything, the multiple layers, what it says, the actor and what he does in it, the musical Mm -hmm. choice, the director's choice to do what he did in that moment. It's, it's, it's as perfect a cinematic moment, emotionally, like, you know, visually acting, writing, everything. It works. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we go from <laughs> we go from your number eleven, which is about yearning and longing and growing up and the pain of falling in love for the first mm-hmm. time, to um, the making of a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm talking about. We need to talk about Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to actually ask you because this is a film that we have not talked about and a filmmaker that we've never talked about, and I'm quite interested. Um, I love Lynn Ramsey. I like she to me, she's the bee's knees. Um, <laughs> she's the kind of filmmaker that like I feel like should be saved by Netflix or somebody and just be given a blank check to do what she wants to do. Um, oh. Part of it because of we need to talk about Kevin, which is like to me so i don't want to talk too much about it but it's basically like it's for at least for me it's about it's about something that's very prescient in america and yeah. very 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 prescient um and part of the reason why i don't want to talk about it is because it ruins its impact if for the first time you see it you already know what's going to happen yeah so with that what do you like? What are your thoughts on We Need to Talk About Kevin and also Lynn Ramsey as a filmmaker? Mm, so, We Need to Talk About Kevin was one of those that I had. I wasn't too interested in seeing mm-hmm. because I, I was shying away from the horror of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean horror as a horror film, but the horror of what happened. Yes. Um, but actually, I think it was my mum that persuaded me to watch it because she had read oh, the wow. book. Oh, um, okay. And she then watched it and said, "I think you should watch this." Um, and she doesn't. She, she didn't used to say that very often because she w- would know. And my mum watched a lot of horror films. Oh wow! And she would. And she would know not to recommend them to me because mm-hmm. I'd say no. But if she ever did, um, I knew that there was a reason to watch it. So I watched it and I knew nothing really about how it was constructed. Oh, so that I'm watching it and thinking, well, what, what's going, you know, and you Mm -hmm. kind of take sides and thinking, Oh, is it, is it her? Is it him? Is Mm -hmm. it? And then of course it all explodes at the end. And it just, it it kind of almost threw me back in the chair because when it actually happened at the end. So from that point of view, the construction of it was absolutely fascinating um and then so yes I, I i think it's a good film i don't think it's one i want to watch again um yeah no i, I i'm there with you this is a movie that i've only seen once actually yeah. that's not true i saw it twice because i wanted to listen to the audio commentary but that's not really watching a movie yeah <laughs> yeah um 
but there are certain moments of this movie that are just ingrained in my head. Like, mm-hmm. like, like you, this is a horror movie. Like I said, like, like I saw the devil real monsters. Yeah. This is a real monster. And yeah. like, I know, um, uh, like Scott, uh, Scott Phillips, our, our, you know, our fellow writer, uh, for, uh, the movie aisle has talked about how this is probably, you know, like if it's if like he was doing a top uh this would be probably at the top of his list oh or okay. very close to it yeah um yeah. it's and it's the topic it's the subject matter when you find out mm-hmm. what it's about you'll under completely understand why we why all not only are we are we skipping around what it's about other than it's about the making of a serial killer or what a serial mm-hmm. killer is and how they how they are developed um but the but what happens and the way it happens and why are the are the central core of this film and like Lynn Ramsey after this film I was like you know what I I'm pretty sure that I mean she has this thing with me where I can only watch her films once like Ratcatcher mm-hmm. yeah I could never watch that film again it's 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 also another f- horror film um the um her most recent film like it's in my top top 10 of 2017 a great Joaquin for performance yeah and again that's one where I was just looking at what what um what I'd thought about you were never really here yeah. and I think I've ended up saying something like I'm glad I've seen it but it wasn't easy and I don't think I want to watch it again yep. so this seems to be a recurring <laughs> a recurring theme with her work and what what I'm curious about is whether whether you and i mean you as in you personally mm-hmm. and you stateside viewers have a, a a different invest well i guess you do have a different investment in the subject matter than we would in the uk mm-hmm. not not to say that our society is is without problems but the scale of something like that is just something that we don't have well no other country in the world does to no. be honest um yeah i think that like um yeah i do i honestly do think that we as americans like or as as film like as as people who ingest films mm-hmm. um like that take films seriously like we have an investment in that and i think that it's too cl- like okay so for my taste it's some of this stuff is too close to an American to really be subjective about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Lim Ramsey is such a, like for me is, is the right person to tackle these types of topics mm-hmm. because she's, she's, she's from the UK. She like, I mean, she started as a, like she started as a punk rocker. Like, like there's something ineffable about like, the way that she started and how she is a true artist because she went from punk rocker to artist to photographer, then finally to filmmaker. Um, Mm -hmm. And I find it funny or I didn't find it funny, but I found it very, very interesting that part of the reason why she chose this film is having a child. Oh, oh, wow. That says so much about, about somebody when, after they have a like after after some kind of life defining event, they make a film or they make a piece of art because this is a piece of art. Um, yeah, it it may not be the most pleasant of art, but it is art. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so, to me, I always feel like 
anybody that's outside of America, like it's the it's the Nabokov thing where mm-hmm. like Nabokov is like one of the greatest writers in the English language. Right. And he talks so much about America, but he was a foreigner like he wasn't mm-hmm. from America, but it was the outsider perspective that gave him the power as a as, as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um and I always feel like that's the same way with um, with films is that I think sometimes Americans are way too close to America mm-hmm. to tackle things like this. Yeah. So, yeah. yep. This is actually um, ready available on uh, on physical media and also like streaming, um, but it's not streaming on Netflix. You're going to actually have to purchase this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would definitely say it's worth it. Um, so. <laughs> talking about weighty subjects like this we're going to another weighty subject in <laughs> your number 10 uh can we talk about um your number 10 yeah sorry to keep the uh the mood so low still but i've chosen um the only documentary from on my list which is the act of killing yes and this actually is also on my list so we're going to talk about this and then i'll just mention it later but this one is my number four um oh, well. So, um, again, um, just a little brief discussion about what it's about and why you chose it. Yeah. And again, without spoilers, because if you haven't seen it, yes, you really should. <laughs> you really should. Um, it's um, so Joshua Oppenheimer goes to Indonesia and he interviews, um, I guess you call them hitmen mm-hmm. from the um the regime under which they operated and they are rather bizarrely invited to to talk about and then reenact some of the crimes that they committed and it is it's actually jaw dropping when you're watching what they are doing without any display or any recognition that they seem to have of of the horrors their families were unaffected because they were in the right group they were in the know, they had the right connections, and they are laughing about some of the crimes that they committed, and they are horrendous crimes as well. And um, and then you get to the end, and if your jaw wasn't already on the floor, it's it's shattering, that, that final yep. interview. Absolutely. And I, it's difficult to talk about without saying what happens so i'm not going to no i I absolutely like you're you're absolutely 100 percent right like it's um i always like to like if if somebody's not seen it i always like to tell a story about how um the movie was the movie was completed and oppenheimer decided to show it to werner herzog werner herzog after the film basically just told him if you need help, I will help you with presenting this film. <laughs> like in, in the way that Werner, I do a terrible Werner Herzog. I love Werner Herzog's voice. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but if, if Werner Herzog says that I will do whatever I need to, to help you get this film out. And uh, if you know anything about Werner Herzog, then you know that this film is special. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And it is true. I've only seen it once, but I, it's all I needed. Like, I don't need to see it again because... Agreed. Agreed. I can recall every single moment from this movie. Mm -hmm. And they're, like, the weird thing, like, the the most striking thing that Joshua Oppenheimer does is that in the recreations, 
he makes them surrealistically beautiful. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, they are more horrifying in their beauty Mm-hmm. than they than anything else like like that's what struck me and that final interview that final mm-hmm. interview will will forever be in my mind and it won't get away from it yeah yeah absolutely no absolutely yeah and this one is actually available um for streaming um i it's actually on net like in in america it's on amazon prime i checked to make sure and it is and any serious film uh film fan or any anybody that is serious about i hate to use this word political filmmaking but mm-hmm. it very much so is political filmmaking um see this movie yeah. um make the time <laughs> mm. um so we're going on to my number 10, which is still yeah. continuing on with the... Oh, the, yeah. More monsters. <laughs> uh, the heaviest of heavies, which is the eight-hour documentary, OJ Made in America, um, directed by Ezra Edelman, um, who has now started to begin to make a real big name for himself um, in this kind of massive um, documentary. Uh, yeah. format um it was released in theater like okay so most people are gonna be like well it was on it was a miniseries on espn i'm like as ezra edelman did not intend to make it a miniseries it was only after it was shown in sundance and it was purchased um it was purchased by espn in conjunction with vice mm-hmm. that it became a miniseries um this movie, even though it's about O.J. Simpson, it is so much more than that. It is, it's like for the people that love serial killer documentaries, this is like the gold standard. This is this is not just about somebody somebody who killed somebody. Much like the TV series, um, the O.J. Uh, the People versus O.J. Simpson. This is so much more, but it actually goes deeper than the trial because it just doesn't talk about the trial. It talks about the man himself. And by talking about the man himself, it gives you an entryway into America, American celebrity, um, power, racism, journalism um, in a big way. Uh, and the way that we ingest things and who we are as a people in America. Now, I have to ask, have you seen uh, Have yes. you seen this? Okay. Yes, I think. I'm trying to think if it was the BBC or Channel 4, but somebody somebody showed it on our terrestrial television, So, oh. um, which was great. Yeah, so I have seen it. And um, I have to ask, you, like watching it, like – it's it's mortifying when you like when you realize like when they get to the trial and they don't pull yeah. any punches um but like how like how much did you know about him before the documentary well i'm old you have to remember yes. that so i <laughs> I'm not, i don't mean like <laughs> yes isn't that but i mean we're both we're both in the like we're both at an age where we could remember who oj simpson was yeah so beyond I, the killer I, yeah, so I remember I remember the trial being on TV. Well, reported on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember watching the um, bits of the the chase, the car chase, 
when it was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what I think we lack in the UK is an appreciation of um, just how famous a character he was. And so I think when it was being televised and people were saying, oh, I remember this, I remember this, and a few people were saying, yeah, what you have to remember is that he is was as famous in the States then. It, it's as like, and they were saying, it's as if Gary Lineker had been accused. And Gary Lineker is one of our top um, uh, football pundits who used to, you know, used to be used to play in, in the national team. and all this. So it was like trying to find a parallel so that we could understand just how big a deal it was. It wasn't just any athlete. It was it was what went with him and what he meant mm-hmm. in terms of his fame for doing what he did, but also being who he was. And, uh, you know, and he was on TV, wasn't he? He was in films and he was carving out a new career for himself. And yeah, so that's what I think we lack is an appreciation of that, the scale of that. But I remember what happened. Yeah, that was just incredible. It, it was um and it's still like it like more than anything i feel like th- this is this is one of two documentaries i have on my on I me mean, of course act of killing is the other one but um i think that it's like for me this stands as a testament to so much of how the documentary has changed in the 2010s mm-hmm. the, the delivery system of the of the documentary but then more than anything it it really talks about like more more than it does about the 90s it talks about the present in america uh really 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 well um, mm-hmm. and again something that is not going to be a re a constant rewatch it's going to be one time it's going to hit you really hard and you're gonna be like i'm good i've seen this and it's going to be stuff that you're n- i think that a lot of people are going to be surprised at how like eight hour documentary about oj simpson Come on. And then you see it and you go, wow, that's like a book. That's like um, I um, I'm actually in the middle of reading the uh, new Robin Williams docu- um, autobiography. Oh, really? Yes. Um, it's super thick. It's super dense. But when you start to read it and you go, yeah, you know what? <laughs> it makes complete sense. <laughs> so with that, um, we are continuing on our heavy duty, um, our, our heavy dutiness uh, with your number nine. Um, uh, what did you choose as your number nine? My number nine, I've chosen a film called Caponeum, which was released in 2018. Um, actually, I think it was released in 2019 in the UK properly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was in Cannes. And then it was at the London Film Festival in 2018. Um, set in, um, well, it's by the Lebanese director Nadine mm-hmm. <clears throat> me. And it's another one of these that tugs your heartstrings, but not in a cloying or melodramatic way. Um, young boy, a 12-year-old, is really struggling to survive on, on the streets of Beirut. Um, and he sues his parents for having brought him into the world. He just decides he doesn't want to be their son anymore because they are not parenting properly. And so he decides to try and set out and forge his own way. And honestly, it's it all centers on this performance from this 12-year-old child who looks 
smaller. He looks like he's seven or eight years old. Yes. He's he, such he's a so way tiny. Yeah. Yeah. He is. Um, <laughs> this movie, like you told me about it and uh-huh. um, it played AFI. So I saw it at AFI. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of those, it's a gobsmack movie. Like you yeah. just feel gobsmacked after it because there's something. Okay. So <laughs> this kid, there is something about him that that I don't want to ruin. Yeah. B- because there's something that's very central to the reason why he is suing his parents. Yeah. When that's revealed, I didn't like I was just like how, why, what? Yeah. And um yeah, it's it's powerful filmmaking. But as like you, I think that you had mentioned in your in your um review of it on the site when you actually had seen it there's a lot of heart and and there's some joy in this film there and is. i think that's what makes it powerful is this is the is the heart and the heartbreak and yeah and there's and it there is an element of hope all the way through yes even in the the most dire of circumstances um there is something about it that deserved its 10 minutes standing ovation at Cannes. I mean, I, it was absolutely, uh, it, it, it stole my heart with at the end. It was absolutely beautiful at the end. It is. It, it is. And again, I don't know if I could ever see it again. Like the, the, the theatrical experience of seeing it on the big screen was enough, but it's definitely something that's indelibly marked in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm so glad that you, uh, I'm so glad that you actually, uh, chose this film because it is such a, it's such a, a good, good, powerful film. It is. And for anyone listening in the UK, it's on Amazon prime at the oh. moment. Oh, so, wow. Uh, no excuses. Is, <laughs> no, no excuses. Uh, yeah. I, uh, it is not streaming in the U S unfortunately. I mean, it's streaming, you can purchase it. Um, yeah. but it is not something like free available um my number nine we're not going to spend much time talking about this because everybody has talked about this film um christopher nolan's inception Mm -hmm. um i feel like it's as we move forward into the decade it or like if we go into the 2020s it feels like like christopher nolan is becoming quickly the lone filmmaker that can make super high budget original films Mm -hmm. and not have to do them in any sort of like realm like like a like a comic book realm or like an existing ip he paid his for his ticket with his his original trilogy which so i feel like like every movie that that christopher nolan has done as he started doing his batman films has been a a response for his doing the Batman films. Like, mm-hmm. d- does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I see what you mean. Like, like he, he was kind of forced into the last Batman film. Everybody is very like acutely aware of it. Um, and it shows it's not like it's good but it's not as great as his one two combo for his Batman mm-hmm. film and I think that since 
uh, since like the inceptions of <laughs> no pun intended mm-hmm. uh, of those films he's he's made challenging he's tried to make challenging big budget uh mature films and mm-hmm. i think that inception is the beginning of it but i think it's also the best of his of those films um and I really like it, but I mean, there's really not much to say because so many people have caught, uh, put this as their top, uh, as their top 2010 film, which I'm mm. seriously surprised by. Like, I'm always like, huh, what? Okay. Yeah. Um, like Quentin Tarantino, just as a side, like a side note, Quentin Tarantino's uh, been doing these podcasts for this website called The Ringer. And he's actually been like actually podcasting with people. And one of the things was was that he started talking about like he did a a podcast on Christopher Nolan specifically for Dunkirk, and mm-hmm. he called it his best movie, like uh, Nolan's best movie, but also it was his like number three of the 2010s. Um, I was happy that it was an Inception, uh, <laughs> but it's not to say that I don't love Inception. It's just so many people talk about it, so you don't need my thoughts on this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's move on to a film that has been talked a lot about, but I feel like it does warrant a discussion because I've not talked about this this film and this filmmaker. So what is your number eight? So interestingly, it's another film um, by a British director about America. Yes. Um, and it's Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave. And again, is another of those that is difficult to watch and that is the point of it and when it came out i was getting more and more annoyed by people who were saying oh i don't know it showed too much of the horrible stuff and that shouldn't be on screen it's it's too horrific that is the point of it people should be compelled to watch things like that because it matters and because it's still relevant how many times have we said that in the last hour when we've been talking. I, I think know, that most of our films we've talked about it. It's like, it's still relevant. Hello. Yes. Just because it was 200 years ago does not mean it doesn't, it's not relevant now. And so 12 Years a Slave is, it was a difficult watch. There's no doubt that. Yeah. It is beautiful. And there are a couple of films or several films where the beauty of the cinematography it's kind of tricks you for a while. Yep. Into not appreciating the brutality of what's mm. happening. And yep. this is one of those. Oh, yeah. And I was mesmerized throughout the whole film and horrified, but not emotional until he apologized at the end. And that mm. broke me. Yeah. Because all the way through, he'd obviously been trying to you know hold himself together mm-hmm. fight his fight in the way he knew how and wouldn't give in and then at the end when he apologized that was when he broke and when i broke and i was a wreck it yeah. was yeah so that's this is for me a film that everybody should see i understand if you can't watch it more than once because i'm not sure not sure i can mm-hmm. but it's it's necessary no, absolutely abs- a- very necessary. Um, so I've not talked about this film, uh, mm-hmm. so I'm going to talk about it. Um, I've seen it twice. I've seen it one and a half times. Um, so my experience was this was um, 
I went to see it. Um, I went to see it. I, it was opening in LA. Uh, it, it had an exclusive run in LA in early November. I still remember mm-hmm. this. So I went to go see it by myself. I, it was at a time where like I wasn't dating anybody. So, and I was, I had just, I had, started to work for the site like uh for film dispenser my first website that i ever worked for so it was about six months six months into working with uh out for the site i went Mm -hmm. to an la exclusive screening i went to see it and then the the scene came up with um the the only the 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 only way that i can i can describe it is the is the hanging scene Mm mm-hmm yep and I couldn't handle it, and I walked out. Yeah. yeah, it it like so now it like but then the thing was was that after I walked out of it, I just I just couldn't handle it. Like and a lot of like three or four people walked out at that moment. Mm-hmm. They just could not handle it. And if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have not, yeah. I won't get into it too much. But it was the sound design, and then the, uh... it was the sound design, and then the little kids. Yep. I I literally wanted to like stand up and just point at this movie and say F you and then just walk out but I didn't I didn't I held I couldn't compose myself because it was such Steve McQueen had gotten me. He yep. got me in the way that I think that he wanted people to get got. Um I immediately the next day I went to go see the film again. <laughs> and I made it through. But that like I so like I said, I only seen it one and a half times because it was. This is the kind of potent filmmaking. Again, another uh, director, Steve McQueen, another man who came from like music, then art, then photography and short films, and then finally started to make films. Like mm-hmm. uh, Shame is still one of the like you know to me like his all of his films like have are so well made and constructed Mm, like widows last year was like my number two film of the year because it was so good. Mm -hmm. Um, Shame is one of those films. Again, you can only see it once. Like once you see it, it like it or um, hunger, hunger is another film. Um, But 12 years a slave. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, like you said, I don't think you could put it more succinctly. Like you, you have to see this film. Yeah. And you, you don't have to see it more than once. You can just see it once and that's it. Um, and so, uh, and it holds so many good performances by people that like uh, Lupita Nyong'o, another one, the Oscars got right. Yes. Yes. Oh, so, so good. good. Yeah. So much like what, and what looks like when you see her, you don't really real like, like now, like thinking about it now, she looks completely different. <laughs> like, yeah, literally transformed herself um, yeah. for this film, and just like you, like I said, like brilliant, powerful filmmaking. Yeah. My number eight. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, I think that okay. So, like, I I chose uh, David Fincher's Social Network, uh, the Social Network, another 2010 film. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like I told you, like really, like like the 20 uh, 2010 was like a pretty hard hitting year. Um, the reason why this was chosen is because uh, 
I think this, like when when the chips fall, it's going to be between this and Zodiac as apex David Fincher movies, like the movies that where you're just like, what is a what is a David Fincher film? And for me, it's either Zodiac or this, which yeah. is really funny because they're both true life stories. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I think that um, and again, this is a lot higher in other people's other people's um list but i think what i love about the movie is that david fincher actively hates every single one of these people <laughs> he hates them whether it's zuckerberg the vault uh the the the, the voss twins or the winkle voss twins um uh, the winkle vi <laughs> winkle vi yeah the winkle vi or um uh who's the andrew garfield character what's his name antonio um I can never remember. I always forget Andrew Garfield's in this. Every time I forget he's in it. Yes. And then he appears. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. A sad a sad boy. <laughs> Another sad boy. But he, I, like, I think that this is something that nobody ever talks about is how much seething disdain that both he and um, uh, screenwriter Aaron Sorkin have for these, these people. Like, like, but... He still shoots it like Fincher still directs it and shoots it like it's it's like some college film, like some college coming of age film. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, it, it's Eduardo, Eduardo Severin. Um, That's right. Yeah. yeah. But like if you could call like if you if you could like point to a movie in 2010 or like in the 2010s that's about. That that basically sums up man babies that came of age during this era. It's this movie and the first <laughs> twenty minutes of this movie. Wow, that's amazing. I, I, so you so you basically used was this twenty ten? Did you say? Yeah. So we start we start the decade with Social Network and end it with Joker. Yep. Exactly. There you go. So masculinity not really moved on very much. It has, not. it has not <laughs> it really hasn't Present company accepted <laughs> exactly except for like i think that so like the big difference between social network and and joker is is that i think todd phillips is sincere about this yeah. about the joker and i think that the social network i think that david fincher fucking hates my, my apologies <laughs> for the thing but fucking hates <laughs> everything that social media that mark zuckerberg the Winklevoss twins, uh, Eduardo, and everybody that created this. Like, he hates everything about it. Um, it's kind of funny to me because it's like, it literally plays out like any kind of like little man baby from the, t like anybody, like any man baby from this era, like when they first get their heart broken. It's kind of ironic to, to talk about like this in comparison to say what used to happen 30 years ago when you fell in love with somebody and you got your heart broken, you didn't decide to create an app that, that would essentially <laughs> toxify relationships with women. Um, you, you just had your heart broken and you listened you to a flaming lip song and you cried about it and you got in over the it. fireplace. That's right. That's yes. what you did. Yeah. You didn't you didn't fucking like go. Well, why did you do this? Why? Why? 
well, you're an asshole. <laughs> and yeah. you didn't, pro- like, you process that. Like, if, it, if that's what happened, you process it. You process it, and then you go through it. You don't sit there and try to burn down the world. And literally, this man has, tr- like, Mark Zuckerberg, like, I hope that Fincher and Eisenberg, like, they've, like, there's been rumors, quiet rumors, that Fincher is, like, Fincher's been, been kind of itching to do, like, a follow-up. Uh, of sorts i uh, would like i don't know if he can maybe that's the reason why it's just been hearsay and rumors because he knows that it's too big of a topic to talk uh, mm-hmm. to tackle right now but man would i love to see them go at this because i mean i thought parasite was a dissection of capitalism and burning <laughs> things down that that, that, that kind of sequel would be amazing but what I think that like I think that people have it on the the their list for wrong the wrong reasons not not to say I think that they're like I think that people are looking at it as a straight like as more of a straight biopic and just because mm-hmm. Fincher is Fincher and the the man babies that we're talking about in social network are the same people that are making these lists so they they, they don't have any distance or reflexivity um what did you think of social network i've been talking a long time about it <laughs> i i liked it uh, from a, a perspective of watching how it started and and that kind of thing mm-hmm. but i absolutely couldn't stand any of the characters in it either so i mean i've seen it a couple of times my favorite bit is where who is it sitting at the table opposite him and she just tells him to his face you're an asshole no it's really leaves him in the restaurant yeah it the is, first that's 10 minutes. Right, yeah, yep. exactly. And um and that's absolutely right. And so I I I appreciate the film, you know, I, I don't mind it, but mm-hmm. it it it's not on my list just because they're just such horrible people. I mean, I barely use Facebook these days, so you know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Um so yeah, I mean social network and like actually not streaming anywhere. Like not streaming for free for anywhere, but you can get it on Apple. Um, you can get it on physical media. Um, the the one thing I will say about their phys- the physical media is is that or the 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 Blu-ray has an amazing wealth of of um, special features. So okay. yeah. if you, if you're wanting to know how, like Fincher does that great thing of like just letting people in and seeing the the way that films are really made. And there's like a three and a half hour documentary on the film. Of a two-hour oh, film. That's very Fincher, though, isn't it? He probably yes. has ten, ten takes at everything he said. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, um, for UK uh, listeners, by the way, it's on Netflix. Wow. I wish. I, I wish that... Uh, <laughs> because then it would just be readily available to people. Yep. And I don't think that there's very many film fans that haven't seen The Social Network. Um, but at the same time, you know, now's a good time to see it. Um, yeah. So have a look. <laughs> exactly. So you're number seven. Yay! So happy <laughs> to be getting to this one now before I do. Um so okay, my number seven is Parasite. Mm-hmm. Uh 2019. Um before we go any further, mm-hmm. the UK appears to be the last area in the entire planet where this film has not yet been released and if there is one thing to say about this film it is do not read listen or watch anything about parasite before you go to see it so we have to talk 
around it very circumspectly because I don't want to spoil this for anyone who hasn't yet seen it. I don't either. Um, because to be quite honest, um, it's it's my number two. So uh-huh. we're we're ta- like I told you guys we're still talking about it. I don't I I mean my list is out there so you guys should know it, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise um because it was my favorite film of of 2019. Mine um, too. <sighs> um this is Bong Joon-ho at his best. Mm-hmm. And I like and the weird thing is oddly enough I think he's just going to get better. Exactly. I was going to say, he's only getting started. Yeah. I love his attitude. And I love the little, when in one of his acceptance speeches the other day, where he said, look, everybody, you get over the one inch high subtitles, you will see some amazing films. Exactly. You know, you know, and people who read the site or listen to me talk about film will know that I, I watch a lot of foreign language films, films not in the English language, should I say. Yes. Um, and I... I always try to encourage people to watch that. I or usually if you do a remake in the English language of a film, it's not the same. You should go back to the original one. It doesn't matter it's not in English and I just can't encourage people enough to get over themselves. If Bong Joon Ho is saying it, mm-hmm. it's gotta be right. It's gotta be right. It it is. Um this is one of cinema's greatest filmmakers. Like mm-hmm. he's He's for those who know him and the you and I know him very well. Um, and he's worked with Jake, of course. Of course. Yeah. If, let's maybe not. Let's go too far down that line. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but so he like this is a this is a film that is one thing. And then at a certain point it morphs into something wholly original. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say to people because, and I will say it's about capitalism and family, but it's done. So I'm going to say something that I feel like I might get blowback on, but I think it's completely apt. Bong Joon-ho is the, the new era, the new millennia's equivalent of Steven Spielberg. Oh, the reason why I say that is is that Spielberg, I think, doesn't get enough credit in the way that he takes genre and he always manages to find a humane way entry point into that genre. That's what makes Spielberg great. Um, think about Raiders. Raiders is not like if you put anybody, if you give that movie to anybody else. Raiders of the Lost Ark is a standard action movie, but in Spielberg's hands, he takes Harrison Ford and he just drags him through 30 to 50 miles of bad road. And it, <laughs> and you feel everything, but you love him for being beaten up. Like Bong Joon-ho finds a way to take whatever topic he has and make it so supremely human that you and his uh, like you cannot help but be drawn into it um i mean and like parasite is just like it's so hard to it's it's a ma- again like i keep on referring to things as magic tricks but they it this is literally a magic trick mhm um yeah <laughs> 
I think a lot of it also has to do with his cast, led by uh, Kang Ho Song, who's been yep. working with him for, what, 20 years now? Yep. Um, and how well they work together. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like he's his Harrison Ford, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, whoever you want to <laughs> put in as an actor-director trio. And I will tell, I will say this, they are just as great as as Scorsese and De Niro or Coppola and Pacino. That's how good Parasite is. Yeah. It's <laughs> good. Um, it's just Scorsese really likes it. So, and he, he, so there you go. Yeah. He says it. A good film it's a good film it is a good film and uh it's playing now in theaters um me and scott are actually going to be talking bong juho and we keep on talking about like i keep on telling people yes it's coming it's coming it's coming mm-hmm. the main reason why we've we we haven't recorded it yet is there's two reasons i cannot find for the life of me i cannot find a a, a copy of memories of murder no it seems to be out of print everywhere um, unless you pay $90 for it on Amazon. Exactly. Um, which says to me that someone's got hold of it and is going to bring out a fabulous version of it. I really soon. hope. I really hope. I hope that it's somebody like Criterion or Arrow yeah. or somebody. Arrow seems to be like the du jour go-to people who really love South Korean cinema. Um, yeah. By point in fact, they brought out this beautiful box set of um, uh, Park Chan-wook's vengeance trilogy oh yeah um so i just hope that it does come out but the other reason is is because we're waiting for the oscars because we want to see like if like i think that that's a like that's a valid like we like me and scott have talked about it it's a valid point to wait for it because whether he gets nominated or not is going to reflect on the conversation that we're going to have yeah that's true and i think that at this point that's the delineation line is are the oscars going to be smart or are they going to be dumb and i really hope they're not dumb i really do yeah (laughs) so for uk listeners um it's released in the uk on february 7th Ooh, wow. It's just it's it'll be just in time for Oscars. It's just a couple of more weeks, guys. Oh, and you guys are okay. So, oh, oh, I have I have a really important question. You guys are going to get into subtitles, right? Oh yeah. Oh, so here's the thing. So when we get films like that, we get the original Korean language version with English subtitles. But I've seen this film because I was in Germany, and it was released in Germany um, in October. And it was still playing a couple of screenings at this small cinema. And I thought, I'm going to go. And I'm, I speak German, so it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. It was not a problem. And I thought, well, I'll just read the German subtitles instead. It'll be fine. No, the screening, the only screening I could get to was a dubbed German version. Mm. So um, I can't wait to see it again. So that, <laughs> so that I can because there may be the one or two little things that I missed because sometimes the cuts were quite quick and the languages mm-hmm. uh, you know things happening quite quickly but um, yeah I, we will see it I will see it in the Korean language with English subtitles and I can't wait absolutely I like like I'm like I was so I was so upset for you when you told me that <laughs> happened, but I was thankful that you speak. Like I knew we've talked about that you speak German. So yep. like, I was thankful that you knew you spoke German so that you at least didn't have that extra layer. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but yes, I'm super excited for you to see it. Um, I've seen it quite a few times uh, since it's been released, uh, just because it's like it's that perfect of a film and it's that entertaining and rewatchable. Yeah. A, a movie that we can finally say yes, watch a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and so my seven is something that is definitely a big screen. Um, it, it's it's an entry that should be seen on the big screen, although I don't know when people will have a chance to see it. And that is um, Alfonso Caron's Gravity. Um, mm. It's like the reason why I chose it uh, primarily is it, it's it's one of the, like it technically it is probably one of the greatest achievements in the 2010s yeah um to watch it on like i saw it like five times in imax 3d like that should tell you guys <laughs> <laughs> the the kind of film that this is this is a this is a this is like the best the best comparison i can make is something that my dad told me when i took when i forced him to go see it he was like adam this is kind of like the way that when i first saw he's like when i first saw lawrence of arabia and then he talked <laughs> he talked to me about that because he's i mean you know my dad is my dad is um he'll be 70 this year so uh -huh. like when lawrence of arabia came out he was like 14 or 15 mm -hmm. and for a lot of guys his age like i was surprised to learn that like over the years that that movie is like a linchpin for them mm -hmm. um because it's such a cinematic movie and he was like yeah. he's like it was he's like it's that first shot of the desert and he's like, it was like, like, you'd never seen anything like that. And the screen filled up your vision. Um, <laughs> and he like, and he was like, it's the same thing with gravity. It's like, you, like the IMAX screen just pulls you in. It gets like, it physically makes you feel like you're falling the same way that Sandra Bullock does. And he's, he was right. I mean, I, I have the movie on physical media. I have a very good, like you, I have a 4K monitor, like I have a mm -hmm. 4K TV. Um, I've recently rewatched it. I even watched it in 3D. And it's just, it loses something. And it's, yeah. it's the grandeur. It's bound to, it is bound to, to, to lose a little bit. But, exactly. Uh, um, yeah. I really wish and I hope that eventually that they will re-release it. Um, because it is something that is such a cinematic experience. Mm -hmm. Um uh, and we haven't even talked about how great Sandra Bullock is in this movie. She is good. Yeah, she is. I, I was looking back at what I'd written about it when I saw it. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my comments was how good she is, despite the fact that she's got some really corny lines of dialogue. <laughs> she does. And she's just wearing her underwear and she still manages to carry it off. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and a very interesting, um, a very, like, I found it funny that the the choice, like, so this was a movie that was supposed to be starring Robert Downey Jr. And at the last minute, he pulled out. And then oh. they, they brought in um, George Clooney, who I feel, I was like, Robert Downey Jr. is a little too snarky for that role. Mm. So it was like one of those things of tests of fate, or like fates that intervened and gave what I feel is like the last great george clooney like star like <laughs> performance if you know what yeah. i mean you know exactly yeah, what i mean i, I know what you mean yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um but please watch this if you haven't like try to watch it on the biggest screen possible if you have somebody that has like a projector or something that would be mm -hmm. probably the best way um yeah. your number six 
My number six is the lobster, Yorgos Lanthimos. And I know you also have selected this somewhere on your list. Yes. So, um, <laughs> number three, Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, the lobster also I cheated big time because I basically put all of his 2010 films <laughs> at the number three spot because I literally could not choose which one was the greater of the films. And like Bong Joon-ho, this guy is like for me, he is the thing that I feel like 2010, like the 2010s were like if I was going to define it by a filmmaker, it would be him because mm-hmm. of his like, OK, so for the U.S., it's five films for around the world. It's probably four. Um, I saw dog like dog tooth wasn't released until 2010. And okay. if anybody is like, okay, so like, let's talk about the lobster because that's your number six. Mm, and then it is. We'll, we'll get into, we'll, we'll get into the other things, the ephemera. Yeah. Well, so for me, this one is just, he's so good at creating a world, which is, recognizable but just slightly bizarre it's just a step beyond what we think of as normal Mm -hmm. but you can still recognize everything that's going on in it and when you look at and you i mean we've all been there where you're not in a relationship and everybody around you is and it's like what it's not so much about the things that you do for love it's what you do to avoid being alone. alone and society is always putting pressure on you you know when you get to a certain age as a woman and it's are you going to have children are you going to get married are you going to do this and that and the other and everything comes in pairs and people making assumptions and it this world that he's created kind of sits in there with some weirdness going on and then you get performances like Colin Farrell is a revelation mm-hmm. in The Lobster. Olivia Coleman is just hysterical and quite scary. Yes. Time. <laughs> ben, uh, Wishaw, ben Wishaw's little character there is just so sad yes. and amusing and yet really stupid. <laughs> but you have sympathy for everybody and yet it's all very delivered in this very cold detached manner so it's all about emotions and relationships and it's so detached that it couldn't it shouldn't work and yet and and then it completely changes and the second half is about is is away from the original setting yes in this hotel and it's like a second film it's like two things that that seem unconnected and yet are and it this is again another one of those that is quite difficult to explain because it's that bit bizarre but that's the world of Yorgos Lanthimos it absolutely is and that's the reason why I I chose all of his films of the 2010s <laughs> is because there has never been like there's there are very few filmmakers that feel like their point of view is more important than the content. Like, I mean, the content is important, but his point of view and his his storytelling acumen it far outweighs anything else in the movies, and they are uniquely him. Like, yeah. I, like each one of the films is about something larger 
Like Dogtooth is about family and the control that parents try to exert to a mm-hmm. to, to a darkly, darkly, cynically comedic point. Mm-hmm. The lobster is about like, you know, I like like when I read what you said, I was like, you know, she's right. She's 100 percent right. As much as it is about modern romance, it's about loneliness mm-hmm. and what you are willing to do to not be alone. Yeah. Um, the killing of a sacred deer is about mental illness. And I don't think that people truly realize how much is it about not about people looking at mental illness but mental illness it like from the point of view of mental illness mm-hmm. like the the three times i've watched that film the first time i hated it the second time i was like wait was, am i am i wrong about this and then the <laughs> third time i was like barry keegan is the key to everything in his character is the key to everything in this film yeah. And when you realize it's told from his point of view and who he is and his mental illness, the movie makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, it all culminates with The Favorite, um, which is about women and power and Olivia Coleman being like one of the best actresses in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, and jealousy and like, you know, it, it's it, but it's all wrapped up in a costume drama with yeah. Yeah. With with one of the like one of America's sweethearts, Emma, Emma Stone, mm-hmm. p- playing a social climber, like I, I just, but it's all through that 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 lens that he does, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, and a guy for a guy who's like, and this is another thing I love is that English is his second language, uh-huh. but every single one of his movies seem to be so distinctly about language and the barriers that are held within and double meanings and the way we communicate. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, did you want to say anything about other, like other Lanthimos films, um, things that you liked, you didn't like, I mean, some people like, I like, I know Scott, for instance, he doesn't like killing of sacred deer at all. He he actively outright dislikes it, um, which is a sign of a good filmmaker. Actually, I feel like if if you have one of those ones where you just go, oh man, why why did you do yeah. that? Yeah, I think my favorite, um, aside from the lobster, would be Dogtooth, mm. um, because I that's another one where I wasn't really sure what to expect, and so you were watching this family and thinking, what what's going on here? Um, that's the kind of thing I like, and that was what. I don't know who put me onto that film, but mm-hmm. that's where I first met him, uh, Matt Lanthimos, if you yeah. see. And um, from then on, I yeah, tr- tried to see all of his films, but I think The Lobster and Dogtooth are my favorites of his. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, like, And um, so it's weird how it works. So The Lobster and The Killing of the Sacred Deer are both available on Amazon in the U.S. Uh, so uh, Dogtooth is only on physical media uh, so you'd have to actually search it out the favorite is also on physical media but it's also available on um hbo one of our pay cable services um mm-hmm. is the lobster available anywhere for you guys i'm just looking now the lobster is available mm, no oh youtube you could you can rent it on youtube other than that you'd have to buy a copy okay absolutely uh yeah okay so, 
it gets us to number your number five or uh no no, no actually my number six which... your number six now this is the i i can't tell you how happy this makes me um so yes so my number six was shared with under the skin which we already talked about yeah. but the uh, the other is cloud atlas uh written directed by lana lily wachowski and tom uh twiker yeah um so i this so first off like i'm very sad like i'm always sad to see that the wachowskis made such a giant imprint but as things have evolved in the 20 like as things have evolved like at the beginning of the decade like or like the beginning of the 2000s they were they make this massive footprint and then slowly but surely yeah it's gone away and a lot of it has to do with um the 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 gender the the gender fluidity the the transition from what made them powerful filmmakers mm. which now that you look upon it you can see so much of their work is about the the shells that people hide behind or the the coming out of like the transition from one being to another being and it's powerful mm-hmm. stuff and they've been marginalized in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they they've made transitions from being men to women mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i feel like everybody has slept on cloud atlas even i slept on cloud atlas <laughs> um because it is such a beautiful wonderful film um so a little weird side note so this movie was like for what it says about humanity I know this is going to sound weird, but in a lot of ways, it hits me in the same way. And it, it was a, a toss up between this and uh, Paddington one and two. Oh, yeah. Because of the compassion. Like, so the thing is with Cloud Atlas is it's a very com like I it's a dense movie. Like, you know, like it's it's as dense as the novel and mm. that the novel that it's based off of. But it's a movie that is not told chronologically. Um, it's multiple stories told with the same souls from different stories mm. and how we keep on making the same mistakes or making the right decision or, or, or how we can change and evolve and make new decisions. The way that the Wachowskis and Twiker made the film is that they used the same actors, sometimes changing their gender for different roles. Uh, even like I know this is going to sound very offensive to people, even changing their co- the skin color. Mm, yeah, that has created some controversy, and in other circumstances, in other films, justifiably so. But in this one, because it's about the links between those souls, mm-hmm. I understand why they've done that. Exactly. If they used different actors, those links would be gone. And that's the essence of the story. Humanity at its core. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason why it shares with the Paddington thing is that it's ultimately at the end of the day, Cloud Atlas sides on humanity. Like, that's why I paired it with under the skin because i feel like under the skin at the end of the day doesn't side with humanity 
<laughs> like what it says at the end, it doesn't side with humanity, but they both come, they both come about their points of view with humanity in a very different way, but within the sci-fi genre. Um, and that's why they ended up on the list. And then that's how, that's how fluxy a list can be is that I can have Paddington one and two in there because it says like, because I love those films and they make me cry. I, Murray, you have no idea the mess I was at the end of Paddington two. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Oh, like, I know, but it is beautiful. It's it really beautiful. Is. And they also, they all, they, both of them share like Paddington one and two and, um, and cloud Atlas share who is possibly my favorite English actor in Ben Wickshaw. Oh, he is good. He is so good. He is so good. And he like the reason why, like, he's one of my favorites if not my favorite is that there's this sense of sadness to him and his and his voice and he just breaks your heart he broke my heart in cloud atlas like i didn't think mm. i was gonna i was gonna get choked up and cry but then he starts playing the piano and he starts reading the letter oh yeah and you start like it be goes beyond anything it goes beyond it, it goes to like the purest of romance and he the way he sells it it, it's just like it's just like in Paddington too when when that moment comes up and the like at the end and you just like like um me and Christina were watching it <laughs> um we had actually because it was like so like weird thing like I I didn't think I was gonna be really into Paddington the first one <laughs> and then I saw it randomly and it was about six months before Paddington was supposed to come out in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I had such a strong reaction to it that I bought the U because it already had come out. Paddington two had come out in the UK and was released and it had a double disc set. So I bought that so that I could, we could watch it. Like instead of waiting until March of April or March or April, we got to see it in December. So like during Christmas time, we're Mm -hmm. watching it and it just, the waterworks start. And Christina looks at me and she goes, that (laughs) stupid bear. And it's because of Ben Wickshaw. Like, 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 ultimately, like, it's also a, like, this is also a reference because I really wanted to put Paddington one and two on this because it's such a, like, with all the darkness that I have on my list, there has to be some kind of like, like good feeling thing. And Paddington yeah. and Paddington two are such a, like, they're a, they're what I like to call a good night movie where you can turn them oh. on at night and you're gonna, you're gonna fall asleep to them and it's going to be okay. Yeah. You do know that Ben Wishaw wasn't supposed to be the original voice of Paddington. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. And I know who it was supposed to be. And if it had been OG Mr. Darcy, I don't know if I'd have liked it as much. <laughs> no, I, I, I kind of would have worked. But I think everybody and it was it was Colin Firth himself who who stepped back and said, yeah. this isn't working. Um, and. I mean, I'm not glad that he did. I mean, he, I think he would have been fine. Yeah. But Ben, ben Wishon makes this little bear. He really does. He does. And I hope they make a third one. To be quite honest, like, I know it ended perfectly with the part two, but there's a part of me that, like, is, like, for those of us that love this 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 burgeoning series, you kind of, like, kind of need another Paddington. Like, it came <laughs> at the right time. Yeah. Um, And, and like, it just, it, it's kind of fun to see all of these great British actors come in and play in the Paddington world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
So yeah, I, I mean, it's all a recommend to me. Like, so Cloud Atlas is um, uh, like it's not available. Like, it's available streaming, but you have to purchase it. Um, it's also available on physical media here. Um, actually, I just checked. Uh, you guys have no excuse here in the U.S. It's on Netflix. Ah. So, so you guys can watch it on Netflix. Um, and then Paddington. Paddington is on Amazon for us here. Both of them. So, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. So uh, let me see. Cloud Atlas is available to purchase again or mm-hmm. purchase streaming. Okay. Um, let me check the Paddington situation for you. Oh, this is great. This is great podcasting, isn't it? It is, but it's okay. Woman, look, woman looks things up on the internet. Let's have a look. Um, oh, so Paddington is available on Amazon Prime for streaming. Oh, great. Which is good in the UK. So go and do that. That's um, that's a good one to do because it's lovely. Um, it's also a bit Brexity as well. Yes, and it then is. Paddington 2 is, also, is available on Amazon Prime too. There you go. Perfect. I love it. That's just Sunday evening for you. Absolutely brilliant. Exactly. And bring the tears and the tea. Yeah, absolutely. And marmalade. Marmalade. (laughs) Marmalade sandwiches. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So your number five, I am completely fascinated by, and I've been on search for it. So I want you to talk to me about uh, your number five. Have you not seen it before? No, I've never seen it. And now I'm on, like, because it's so high on your list, I am so intrigued by your blurb about it that I'm trying okay. to find it. So it's a 2010 film called Even the Rain, Tambien uh, La Lluvia. And it is one of those films that I have not dared watch since because I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. It's a story um, filmed and set set in Bolivia in Cochabamba um, and kind of draws on a real life story that happened to the uh, the native people in Cochabamba where the um, water companies came in to international companies to take over the um, the rainforests and what have you and basically the locals are having to pay for their own water and there's there's a point in it where he says we even even the rain we have to pay for um which kind of sums that up now what's really interesting there's lots of interesting things about this um one of one of them is that they the filmmakers used local residents as extras in mm-hmm. the film and use them for um, build the like, set to building the sets and that kind of thing. Yeah. So whilst the film is about the exploitation of the residents of the area, you're watching the film and thinking, well, I, it's a bit of a meta thought because you're thinking, I, I wonder if, did the filmmakers exploit the locals in making the film about the exploitation? I really hope that didn't happen. Um, It's absolutely fascinating. Central to this are two performances by uh, Gael Garcia Bernal and Luis Tosar, who are um, play the kind of the 
the lead roles of the the people who are, are going over there and trying to you know sort out the demonstrations and you know representing the company or the locals or what have you keep changing sides um there are references of course to um the claiming of land by christopher columbus 500 mm. years ago so it is a fascinating film and it was at a time when gal garcia bernal was doing some great he still does good work but he, he had a, a couple of years where Everything he did was absolutely brilliant. And nobody and, saw yeah. it. And no, well, because it's not in English. Yes, go back exactly. I mean, directing, yeah. acting, writing, like his like his real-life friend, um, yeah. Diego Luna, Diego, Diego Luna yeah. doing great work that nobody saw in the early yeah. 2010s. Yeah. Um, so... What also like so? What really interests me about this film, and like when I was doing my research, I was like, so it's written by this white dude, and then I read who the dude was. Did you? Okay, yep. And I was like, okay, now I need to see this because I Daniel Blake is like a smack in the face in the best way possible, um, and Paul Verdi, I just became aware of who he was. Like I was like, okay, so. I'm like, oh, he's he's like Ken Loach's guy. Like, and when you're Ken Loach's guy, like, you know, I my ears perk up. So, and then finding out that he was born in Calcutta, mm-hmm. and it was just like these all these convexing things that I'm like, okay, you know what? Yeah, this is definitely on my list. I've seen if I've seen like you know five or six of your films. And I didn't know, but they all like like when they connect in my brain, like, oh yeah, that's the same writer. Like that's mm-hmm. like, and there's something going on there, and he's politically charged in the best way possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, like again, like I'm searching for this. Um, like, like when it's like these kinds of films, I like to kind of own these, like on physical mm-hmm. media, and I know there's a DVD and a Blu-ray out there in the U.S., so I'm just searching for it. Okay. So, but when I do find it, like, it, it becomes this whole thing of, like, once I do find something like this, it's like, oh, I got it. Now I can watch it instantly. Yeah. Um. So, uh, is it is it uh, available streaming or anything in your uh, You area? can rent it uh, on YouTube in the UK. Uh, otherwise, it's uh, buying it in, in hard copy. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. I may actually have to go to just UK and just buy it for you from you guys from yeah. from across the <laughs> pond. Uh, um. So, but yes, uh, so good. Like I'm so excited about that one. That one was when I was on my list. I was like, yeah, I got to get this one. Um, my number five is Upstream Color by Shane Carruth. Yeah. Um, so this film, like a lot of like, I think that there's a there's a there's a pretty consistent through line of sci-fi that's mysterious and mm-hmm. um, and very dense and hard to get into, like or hard to enter enter into. But I think Shane Carruth is a genius. Like he's like he's one of the working geniuses out there. He is so just to give you guys an idea of who he is, um, he is a guy that Ryan Johnson went to when he was having problems with Looper and finishing the script of Looper and how to logically work it out. He went to Shane Carruth and Shane Carruth helped him. Like over a couple of days, they figured wow. out the issues. The reason why Shane Carruth I feel is a genius is not just on upstream color, but his first film, 
which is called Primer. Mm-hmm. Primer is a $7,000 twisty, turny time travel movie. Mm-hmm. I will give you nothing more than that, but I will say after you see it, you will want to go on to the internet and find the infographic on how that movie works. <laughs> <laughs> because I've seen Primer and I saw Primer, like I was obsessed with Primer when it was released in 97. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I saw it multiple times and I even listened to the commentary, which Caruth does a great job of not answering any questions. <laughs> um, and he made this, he self-funded, uh, wrote, directed, edited, um, and stars in Upstream Color mm-hmm. with one of the one of the most underrated American actress filmmakers out there right now, Amy Simons. Mm-hmm. And this movie is about identity and romance oh, and love and the need for human connection. In a way that I don't think that you would ever, ever, ever like if you try if I tried to describe it to you guys, you guys would laugh and you guys wouldn't go watch it (laughs) because it's all in the execution that Shane Carruth brings to this and the dance that him and Amy Simons play in this movie. Um, She's so good in this movie. So, so good. Um, I would say that she's even better than Carruth. There is a moment um, that's the that's the poster. Like, it's an image of the poster, but the moment these two commit to this is just, it's, I don't know, like, it's so good. Have you seen um, Upstream Colors? I have, and Primer, but now I need to go and see them again now. Yes. Yeah, it's been been quite a while, but yeah, they were very, they're very different. I mean, don't expect narrative sci-fi, or it's not, it's not like that. Um it's an atmosphere yep and um in the same kind of way of, of under the skin i think that kind of absolutely yeah mysterious i don't i don't know how to describe it because i don't think you can but yeah i i they're definitely recommended and i'm gonna go and watch them again absolutely I, i'm glad i'm glad um they like yeah uh shane Carruth is a guy that i really wish that like you know how like somebody like some people some filmmakers get the get get saved by companies and they're like you know what? we love your work we're going to we're going to work with you and we're going to just spend money on you. Yeah. Like A24 is is done that multiple times with multiple filmmakers. Mm-hmm. I I wish that somebody would do that with um would do that with him because he he's worth investing in because the returns are something very special. Yeah. Um, so with that Let's get to your number four, uh, which I'm very okay. excited to talk about this filmmaker because I know how much you stand for this person. I do. <laughs> and um, I love Xavier Dolan. So yes. I had to have one of his films. And I think um, I think Mummy is probably the best. Well, for me, it's, it's his best film. It's not the easiest, again, to watch. When I first saw it, um, I walked out of the cinema and thought, well, that was brilliant, but I never, ever, ever need to see it again mm-hmm. because it's shouty. I had a headache. It's just, you know, the, the it's constant um, aggravation, confrontation. And yet, I, when I did go back to rewatching it, I loved it even more. There is something about that man as a filmmaker 
that okay maybe his films all have something very similar and he hasn't broken out successfully from his little area that he feels comfortable making films about but that area that he is in at for his age he is i think a genius director he is he has everything like yeah. like Okay, so I was going to ask you, do you think that the first time, okay, so like, do you think that the first time that you saw Mommy, um, your reaction to it was Dolan's, like, execution of of getting you so subjectively into the, the feet of Mommy that it's it was almost like he did too good of a job? Uh, wow, what a way of looking at it. Very probably, because... From, because so I'm closer in age to the mommy. Yes. And have worked with young people who cannot control their emotions or their actions. Mm -hmm. And so seeing it from that point of view, I'm you think, well, you just want this to stop. Yep. But if you're the parent. it can't you 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 have to you have the responsibility to parent the child so the mother is trapped in that sense and you can see her wanting to break away but she can't because she loves her son despite everything she wants to care for him despite everything and then the young man is desperately on occasions trying to to be a different person because yes. he knows that he needs to um, but he 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 is incapable of it, and he's trapped by other things. Very much so. Very uh, very much so. Like, um, so I was going to ask you uh, because it's it's a it's a very interesting um, that you put this on there. Um, okay, so twenty nineteen, your number ten, System yeah. Crasher. Yes. It feels like it's within the same realm. Yes. It is, and there are connections, and there are now. System Crasher is about a young. Uh, it's a German film about yes. a young girl. I think she's about eight or nine, something like that. Maybe ten, maybe ten. ten yeah. um, who is um, <sighs> failed by social services for one reason or another. She has, she has issues. She has due to things that happened to her when she was much younger, and she's failed all the way along by social services and she is looking for love um the the boy and mommy is that's what he wants as well he wants to be accepted accepted those relation those relationships between people who are trying to help or people in a position to help are just not working for a number of reasons and most of them outside of the control of any single person (laughs) so there are parallels between the two and i would say that Mummy and System Crasher are both films that are not easy to watch. No. But are worth the investment. And yeah, it's interesting that you've picked that up. There are there are similarities. Absolutely. And um, 
Mommy, I mean, I've not seen System Crasher, though your your um your review of it for the site and then it making its top ten has definitely mm. put it it's it's earmarked it. Like I actually have an IMDB folder that is just Marie's picks. And I just put <laughs> I put them in there um because like I always want to make sure that I can get to your stuff. Like and same with the Scott. Like a Scott like occasionally will will mention something and if he mentions something, because he's a man of few words, <laughs> um he like I instantly I instantly um, put it in there. And then like the same with you, when I read your reviews, which is always a pleasure. Like I always love, like my favorite thing about the site, right? Like is when Marie has finished a review and she's sent it over to me um, not to edit, because like I said earlier, I don't edit anything that she does. (laughs) Or maybe I said that offline. (laughs) Uh, She's a wonderful writer. And when I find, when she finds something that she connects with, it instantly goes into the, uh, Marie need to see pile and um, system crasher is definitely there because of the kind of stark reaction that you had to it. Um, uh, but mommy, like if it's, if it's kind of in that kind of realm, then I, I can, I kind of know what to expect. Um, yeah. Mommy is interesting because um, like you, you mentioned something, it's very shouty. His films sometimes can get very shouty, yeah. um, which I find is, um, is interesting because he does it in a way that at the time it doesn't feel shrill. But when you, upon reflecting on it, like after you get out, you're exhausted. Like there are certain yeah. movies from him where you get out of them and you are exhausted. Like um, it's only the end of the world exhausted me. Yes. Yes. Because <sighs> everything's happening at once. Yes. And in fact, I read that the, the original stage play for that um, actually, people do talk over each other on oh, stage. Oh God, I I don't know if yeah. I can handle that. Yeah, I mean, because it like uh like it's only the end of the world is another film. Um, it, like he's made a lot of films. He is not even thirty years old, and I think he's made. Uh, I think he he's made at least eight, if not ten. Yeah, yeah, ten, ten because he has two. One that hasn't been released in the U.S. I don't even think in the U.K. And then another one that he's he's just completed. Um, yeah. that we haven't seen yet. So though I think I know somebody who's seen the life and death of John F. Donovan. I have seen the life of death of John F. Donovan. No, we don't, we, we haven't had it released here. Um, and the U S for some reason just doesn't like him anymore and, and doesn't pick up his films. So I, I ordered it over from, um, from France. Um, but it's an English language film. It's his first yes. film yeah. in English language. So, um, and it, it's different, actually, but I mean, there were a lot of issues in the editing with that. We know, yes. we know that, um, and it is a little bit different. Um, so I don't want to talk too much about it if mm-hmm. people haven't seen it, because I'm, you know, I'm I will I've watched it because I've I've seen I think I've seen all of his films yes. that he's directed, and then this year it's uh, Matthias and Maxime, which think which is back into the french language and yes, seems to be back into familiar territory again so yes. we'll see if the uk picks that one up maybe london film festival might pick it up it would be i well that one i really want to see because it's um it's a foray into black and white and uh yeah oh i hadn't realized that huh yeah supposedly it's a foray into black and white i mean like there's very little like i i, I can only imagine that you know in in um in canada 
it's it's something that you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to know what Xavier Dolan is doing next. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but here it's kind of radio silence because I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Like um, my favorite of his is Tom at the farm. Oh, that's interesting because that's a slightly different. Mm, yeah, it, it is a very, very different film. It is it is more of a genre exercise. It is. Yeah, it, it is. But the thing that I love about it is that it, it it's a film that shows that he can act as much as he can write mm. and direct. Maybe not as much as he can write and direct. Um but it also like it also like brings like the thing of like like I always think of like you know is this guy is just too good looking too talented <laughs> is there anything he can't do I mean he's under thirty and he's made ten films and you can pretty much guarantee anything that you see like just because it's not released in the U S doesn't mean anything to me like or has gotten a major release in L uh, in uh, uh, stateside though i mm. would love to see him get more to get like you know to get more access like so that i have accessibility to him. yeah yeah of um but it, he's just he's one of those filmmakers that you just go okay so he's just getting better he's refining himself when is he gonna get that work that connects like I don't. I hate to use the word commercially with him. Yeah. But yeah. something that connects to an audience that, oh, okay, this is Xavier Dolan, everybody. And then yeah. we can have a whole bunch of people say, well, I knew Xavier Dolan since Heartbeats. It's like, yeah. okay, <laughs> shut up, please. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if that'll ever happen because he's he's too prickly, really, for to be embraced by the general public. Th his, this is. You know what? You're true. Like me, we will, we'll, you know, we'll follow him. But I don't, I don't, I don't think uh, the general public would embrace him quite as much. This is true. Well, at least the hardcore film community, because I don't yeah. even think they have, in a way that, like, say, the European film community has. Mm. And I mean, and he's just our neighbor. He's Canadian. Like, yeah, he's he's French Canadian, but he's Canadian. Yeah. Um, again, that one inch barrier, like yeah, Bong exactly. Joon Ho's talked about. You yeah. Know? Um, yep. so number, your number, oh, so like my, um, just so that everybody knows, um, my number four was the act of killing. We've already talked about it. So oh, gonna, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we've got to go ahead and we get to number three for Marie. And why don't you talk a little bit about this? Cause this one was also another one that I was like, okay, this is very striking and I'm very interested. Yeah. So it's a film called uh, Waru. Um, and it's a New Zealand film from 2017, and it took an absolute age to get anywhere near the UK. Um, it played at Toronto Film Festival, um, but I didn't get to see it there, and then it was supposed to be streaming on Amazon, and then they kept removing it. Um, and eventually, uh, my local lovely cinema um, showed it for one night only, and I went off um, to see it. And it is a very powerful film and a really interesting film. And it's really difficult to describe it as a narrative in one sense because it's eight different female directors were each sent away to create a 10-minute short, mm -hmm. uh, which they've woven together into this one film. Now, each of the shorts is shot in one take. 
Um, they all have female characters as the lead and they're all connected in some way, sometimes not quite as strongly as others, to the funeral of a young boy. And by the end of it, you see how all the connections fit together. Um, and it's really interesting look at, well, more than interesting, it's quite, quite a pointed look at societal issues in New Zealand, looking at um, inequality, at um, the, the, the place of the Maori people of New Zealand in their own country, how the media um, promotes this or otherwise. Um, and it ends with a direct look to camera and basically asking you as the viewer what you're going to do about it and it it is i I think it's now available on on amazon i'll check in a moment but i think it's i don't think it's been seen very much but it's i've only seen it the once and it stuck with me it had such an impact and i think particularly the one take because you are with these people for only a short period of time but it allows you to see into their lives because you're walking around their house or around their community um so yeah it's 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 different and it's definitely worth seeking out if you can find it anywhere absolutely um like whenever you talk about like powerful filmmaking i always take i always take heed and credence and this one also again was added in there to my list um i i'm very very interested and intrigued by this because of the fact that they they had eight female directors and Mm -hmm. they're all done in a single take that Mm -hmm. to me is like that's something that i'm very interested in so i'm going to go ahead and try to find this film um I I like just because like not even because of anything other than like it sounds so mm-hmm. so powerful and that single take and using that as a tool to tell like to get ahead of steam to tell something or make a point about something is mm-hmm. like I like that I definitely like that um so I is I checked it's not available anywhere for us yeah, we have it on Amazon Prime streaming. Awesome. Awesome. So I think I need to go back again. And what's really good about this is it's not particularly, it's not a high budget film. And by by asking eight people to do a 10 minute short, mm-hmm. they can do that for a lot less money than if you're trying to do an, an, an 80 minute feature. Yes. So actually it's allowed these eight different women, in fact, Oh, yeah, they're right. Um, yes, it's allowed these eight different women and their crew and their cast to tell short stories on quite a low budget that then actually weave into something bigger. Um, and give and something I think that's more seen. Really in- yes, and, and a really interesting look at... Or giving them a, an interesting opportunity that they wouldn't have had and to get their work seen uh, on a wider scale. So I'm recommending this um, as the one that I guess most people this is the one on my list that i'm guessing most people haven't seen no i yeah i i would guarantee it <laughs> unless yeah. unless we have a huge outpouring of people from new zealand which is entirely possible <laughs> well, it's, 
It's possible. <laughs> yes. Um, so my number three was Dogtooth the Lobster, all of um, Lanthimos's uh, <laughs> filmography for the 2010s. So yeah. we're bringing it back. Unfortunately, we're bringing it back to you again, Marie. To me again. Your number two. Um, my number two is another Canadian film, and yes. it's uh, Enemy. It's yes. uh, Denise Villeneuve, which was one of those that, when I got to the end and had to go immediately back and watch it again because there was so much going on in such a quiet and understated way that I had no idea what to make of it. And the more I see this, the better it gets and the more I see in it. So, but again, it's one of those that, featuring Jake Gyllenhaal that possibly slipped under the radar because it it I don't it certainly not in the UK didn't get a massive release and was also out at the same time as another film about a doppelganger which had um Jesse Eisenberg in it the double what was that called now was it called the double yeah so they were out at about the same time in the UK yes and you guys would have probably gotten more play on the double because it um it was directed by Richard Attaway oh yeah maybe we did and certainly because the yeah I can't remember exactly why now but anyway definitely the double was the one that seemed to be getting more play and enemy just kind of appeared and then disappeared yes and yet it's it's just so weird and fascinating look into a man's psyche. And I actually went it for the very first time in a long time. It made me go and buy the book and read the book that the film is based on, which Ooh, is nice. just as weird. <laughs> I, I could only suspect, um, uh, Villeneuve is this this really interesting filmmaker. We've talked about him. I mean, we've actually talked about this on the B Movie podcast. This actual we have. movie, we um, have. which is it's a it's it's a fascinating movie and a fascinating look mm -hmm. into a filmmaker that like like you can tell that this is something that he personally really wanted to make. It wasn't yep. like it was it it's something that he did for studios. Um, and it's it's very interesting because it's a it's right after prisoners, and he went smaller, like which is interesting yeah. to me. Um, yeah. But again, uh, it's a really 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 good film. Like I really like it. Um, he actually his um, one of his films almost made it onto my list of uh, the arrival. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Which I adore that movie. Um, but then it just. Like you, like we talked about, my list is why my list was very fluxy, and <laughs> I already had enough sci-fi on it. And I think that the sci-fi that I had said something very similar to what um, the arrival said, so it went it went away. Um, but I have a feeling that, like, so this year we should talk about this just a little bit because I did an article on the movies of 2010 mm -hmm. or 2020 that I'm looking forward to, and the one that I'm looking forward to the most is mm -hmm. Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune. Oh, yes. Well, and I saw the um, the um, David Lynch version earlier last year. Yes. Because he was doing, we had, um, 
he had an art exhibition in, in Man- here in Manchester as part of the Manchester International Festival. And along with that, the cinema that was hosting the, the art exhibition was doing Q&As with him via video link and then showed a number of his films. And that was one that I had not seen ever uh, all the way through. And so I went to see it on the big screen and made me think, oh, I really want to see what it works what it looks like when it's done properly. Exactly. Which, sorry to David Lynch, you know, he's amazing and all that, but he, he doesn't think Dave, that Dune is proper anyway. So I think we can say that. So yeah, yeah. T- tell me about tell me about Villeneuve's Dune. Mr. Chalamet is back for you. Yes, he is. Um, I think it's a big swing. I mean, he mm-hmm. has half the, the most hot, uh, he has half the hottest actors in, in, in Hollywood in the mm-hmm. movie. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I I I'm just very fascinated about this whole thing of like Villeneuve saying that Dune was like was the dream project when he was a kid what he wanted to do like he saw he saw the Lynch Dune and said yeah no I can do that better <laughs> and one day I will and he's getting to do it he's getting to do it yeah I mean it's it's just and it's a weird convex of people you got you've got your favorite Jason Momoa and Oscar Isaacs, you got, uh, you got Zendaya and uh, like you know, uh, Dave Batista. Like this is like a really crazy cast. That Stalin Skarsgård. I mean, anytime you got Stalin Skarsgård in a movie, um, it's it's a it's an interesting choice because you're yeah. gonna get bold choices. It's like um, my favorite thing from the Golden Globes was his acceptance speech and talking about his eyebrows. <laughs> and I'm just like, huh, really? Yeah. Um, like the only way that I think the Dune could be any more my thing is if Jared Harris was announced as a cast member too. <laughs> I would have just taken it over the top. I'm like, you give me this, give me all of this. I'm I'm drinking the uh, I'm drinking the spice. Give me it all. I don't care. You could have Toto come back to do the score. Give it to me all. Um, and then also like Ludwig Göransson, uh, who has become quickly become one of my favorite uh, composers, is actually doing the music with um everybody's favorite or not favorite Hans Zimmer. So that's going to be an interesting kind of combination of of sounds. So yeah, I mean, I'm all for Dune even if it crashes and burns, which I think it is a high possible probability of doing. It's still going to be more interesting than half of the stuff that's out there right now. So yeah. Uh, my uh, my number two was Parasite, so we don't have to talk about that. You guys know where we stand with that, which brings us to our number ones. Mm-hmm. So I would love to have you talk a little, like, you know, wax a little love letter to the num- your number one movie. Mm. My number one movie of the decade is Moonlight, which mm. is just such a beautiful film and also an important one. Um, but the way that the strands of the three different scenarios come together, I just think Barry Jenkins is, was, is a genius weaver with, with them all just coming together at the end. Um, and, and the way that, that people appear and disappear, um, mm. that you, you feel really strongly someone's absence when they're not there anymore yep. even though it's not said that they've gone it's just oh what happened, what happened to Mahershala <sighs> and his absence is, is his absence is present throughout the rest of the movie yeah 
no, he absolutely. had such an impact on the on the the child. Um, it's yeah. You're even making you're you're making me like I'm just thinking about it, and it makes me it makes me emotional to think about yeah. it because it's that. Uh, you know, it's you know what it is for me. It's the moment at the breakfast table. Yeah. With, yeah. Between him, the small child, and Janelle Monet. Yeah. And yeah. Them looking at like them knowing exactly like so. I have to ask you in this movie. There's a lot, like you said. There's a lot of gaps. Yeah. I have my theories about things, but I'd love to hear what you think. Like the looks that that Janelle, Janelle Monet and Mahershala Ali exchange with one another are very like to me. They're very knowing. Um, yeah, and the way that Mahershala Ali talks to uh, that talks to him is like of a place of knowledge and compassion. Um, do you feel like the same way where it's not being said, but it's absolutely being said that uh, that Mahershala Ali's character is probably gay and has hidden it has has had to hide it in the same way that um, that eventually. Uh, that eventually, you know, um, gosh, I can't even think of the character's name that's played by Trevante Rhodes. Um, uh, uh, what's, what's his name? Is, oh, is it um, I'm gonna have to look it up now. Yes, I am. I, I am just, uh, oh, why don't I see it? Why don't I see it? Uh, Sharon. Sharon. Oh, is that, I'm just thinking of Little. That was his nickname, wasn't it? That was it? his nickname when he's yeah. when, when he's a when he's a little kid. When he's a boy, yeah. Yeah, it's and yeah. it's Chiron. Um, and like, like it's there's so much to unpack in that scene, but at the same time, it feels like it's all there. Like Barry Jenkins makes it very accessible without mm. having to have like a like this stupid thing. Well. Like, you know, like, like they, like, you know, a moment between Janelle Monet and, and Mahershala where they're like, he's like, well, I know exactly what she, I know exactly what's going on. Mm. Something dumb like that. It's all done through just this humane, like this human moment of connection and understanding. Yeah. Though I may yeah. be wrong. Like, I, I, I would like to know what your take is. I had, I don't know. And I think the reason that I never thought about it too much is because in one sense it it doesn't matter yeah it doesn't i think what it for whatever reason i mean it is interesting mm -hmm. why he does it but the fact that um juan just gives chiron the the feeling that he is accepted in that house mm -hmm. and that whatever he thinks he might whatever kind of a person he thinks he might be and that that might not be like everybody else, that that's okay. Yep. And that level of acceptance is the important thing for me, not where it came from. Of course. Um, but, but that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Like I have yeah. this whole, I have this whole thing in my, in my head of what yeah. happened to him and why it happened to him. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, you're right. It doesn't matter. Like yeah. it's all it is, is it, it's, it's stuff that can be added into the background. Um, but it, it, like, it absolutely is no wonder why Mahershala Ali 
ended up winning an Oscar for this. Mm, yeah. And it's no wonder, like, to me, it's no wonder that he is a two-time Oscar winner. He mm-hmm. is, like, this is his movie. That, like, again, going back to, like, something weird, it's like, the first time I saw him was in a Fincher movie. It was in Benjamin Button. Oh, wow. Where he plays, that... where he plays Benjamin's, like, kind of stepfather of sorts. I, I have not seen that film since it came out in cinema. Yep. But I still remember him. He made such an impression. But it's like, it just proves to me that like, just like the the two Oscar wins is kind of sort of confirmation just how good of an actor he is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because I mean, you know, people can try to break, uh, like break it down. Oh, it was a political statement. No, it wasn't. It was just, he was just that damn good in this movie. Yeah, it and was. Yeah. He was so good in a terrible movie like Green Green Book that they still gave him the Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> like that's my that's my my take on it. <laughs> uh, but um this one is available like for us it's available on Amazon Prime for free. So if you've mm-hmm. not seen it, like um I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shame people for not having seen it because it is it it is a it is an amazing film that should be seen. Really, it really. is. It's not streaming in the UK from what I can make out. Mm, but that's okay because I have the Blu-ray, so I yes. don't care. <laughs> uh, and the Blu-ray you could probably find reasonably inexpensive. Uh, inexpensive. I think that when it came out uh, in the US, um, I waited a little bit, and then it came. I went down to like like nine ninety nine. So I can only imagine mm-hmm. it's even cheaper now. So like you really don't yeah. have a reason not to not to purchase it. Yeah, um, that's true. So yeah, so. Wrapping up with my number one, which was, Mm -hmm. it was actually no contest. Like the instant I started thinking about it, I'm like, I think it's this. I'm pretty sure it's this. Yeah, it's this. Let's go ahead and just kind of do the thing, but we'll keep it at top. And then we'll have, we'll have people kind of like reigning tie to be the champ, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, it's like, you know, uh, I guess I I could put it for our UK people, like um, footballer terms. It's like Lionel, Lionel Messier. (laughs) <laughs> you want to say that he's not, but then when you see him, like, I mean, you see him watching his own highlight clips and you go, really, dude? Really? <laughs> oh, but then you realize, like, when you watch his highlight clips and you go, yeah, you know what? If if, if I was Lionel Messi, I'd be watching my highlight He'd clips too. Watching, yeah, he is that good, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so <laughs> it, it comes for me to Mad Max Fury Road, um, directed by George Miller, literally 30 years uh, 25 years in the making um thankfully he waited the 25 years because i don't want to have to re-canonize myself and have (laughs) oh you know what mel gibbs is in that movie i can't do that anymore Mm. i can't talk about this now of course he traded one troubling figure for somebody who occasionally has been troubling in Mm -hmm. tom hardy yep um but the great thing about Mad Max Fury Road is that the title character is not the main character. No. <laughs> it's not. It, it, it like Which is one of the many things I love about it. Um, this movie is from opening frame to ending frame. Even even though Tom Hardy is in, in those opening frames, this movie belongs to the one and only Charlize Theron. Mm-hmm. It does. As Furiosa. Um, and this film, like... So when we're talking about films that are purely cinema, this is exactly what this is. It's a movie that is essentially 
an action scene from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. The fewest amount, like, I think that I was reading something. It has, for runtime, per dialogue, produced studio, has the least amount of dialogue of any studio film in uh, in the 2010s. Wow. Though, you know exactly what this movie is about. You know these characters. You can talk about these, like, you can talk about this film in a multi-layered, uh, a multi-layered point of view. Like, it, it's about, like, you know, yeah, it's an action film, but it's also about patriarchy and men's point of view of women and what we, what we as men, and I say we as a whole, do to women. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that it's become even more heightened as we've gotten into that whole really toxic environment that men have created. Oh. Um, and it's just a kick-ass action movie that has a female and male lead that never is sexualized. And mm-hmm. because of that, it is 20 times the movie that any other action movie, even some that Charlize Theron has been a part of, is. It's because that they, like for me, Furiosa and Max see each other as kindred spirits, warriors that can fight side to side. There's a moment where they have been combative and they're starting, they they know they, at a certain moment, they look at one another and they realize that they have to work together to survive and they don't say anything. They just exchange physicalities. And it the dynamic switches, and I Mm -hmm. feel like it's the one of the best moments in cinema where where two people at odds have have decided to work together, and it's like (laughs) a little nod. That's all it is, and I don't know. It's like there's so much about this film, and like there's a part of me that just wants George Miller to let it go and just let it be this one. But then mm-hmm. there's the other part of me that hears that he has something in the mind and he knows it's like he's kind of trying to ramp up to it because he knows it's going to be like two to five years in the making like this one was. And he doesn't know if he has it in him, like him and John Seal, two guys who are at this point 72 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing. Like, it, like it's amazing to me that's, that a piece of cinema that is – that. And this is something that cannot be replicated. Like, I feel like Mad Max Fury Road is a movie that nobody else could have made except for George Miller. But it feels completely modern. But it's done by two guys who at the time were 68 years old. <laughs> that is crazy to me. Um, <laughs> all right. How do you feel about like Mad Max Fury Road? Well, I knew it was going to be your number one. Mm-hmm. As I was working my way through the list and, and I was thinking... I haven't seen Mad Max yet. It's going to be number one, isn't it? It's going to be number one, isn't it? And I got there and it was number one. Um, I don't have a connection okay. to, to it at all. Okay. Um, I thought it was okay. I thought some of the sections of the action were very good. Um, but I came out and felt, well, they spent the first half getting somewhere and the second half getting back, <laughs> and, which is essentially what the story is. Yeah. And um, and and Charlize Theron is pretty good, but she doesn't say anything. And 
and I kind of felt like that about it. it it's it just I can see why lots of people really liked it, mm-hmm. but it it didn't push any buttons for me. Um, and this is why yeah. I love talking with you because, like, to me, that's fascinating because, like, that's like it also proves that like film is not everybody's cup of like certain films are not everybody's cup of tea mm-hmm. and that's okay yeah. like I, yeah. I i love the fact that like i'm so on board for the mad max movie and then you're yeah. like eh, well i mean yeah. it was good but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, but it's the, but that's the, like i feel like that is the essence of film is that something could be so like ingrained in me and then something could be just like uh, yeah. <laughs> no, you're uh, right. And, and 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 I think what's really funny is that, and I'm so happy for you that you love this so much. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that was going to be your number one because I know how much you love it. Mm-hmm. I've just I've seen it over the last five years that yeah. it's stuck in my head how much you love it. And I knew <laughs> you were going to be there, which so, is crazy. You know, I, I'm, five yeah, years. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you. I really am. Uh, what's but, the uh, more shocking part about this is that we've known each other for five years. Like, like thinking yeah. about it now, I'm like, yeah, you know what? We have. I mean, like, that's a long, t- like, like, yeah. like, but it is funny that I, I guess I have stood for, for this movie for so, like, since it's, it's release that it's yeah. like, yeah, you know what? It makes complete sense. This is a total Adam movie. As much as, you know, t- like, and this is, again, not a dig. As much as Moonlight, I'm like, as soon as I heard, you know, like, I, like we were talking about 2010s, and I was yeah. like, you know, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Moonlight because, yeah, yeah. and it was, and it's because of your love for Kong Wai War. Yeah. Or oh, War, uh, Wong Kar Wai. Uh, Wong, like, Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and um, how. Yeah, and how much it was that, and then also reading, uh, like you know, reading how how you've talked about the film, it mm. was like, yeah, that 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 could be a big possibility. Ability yeah. as much as like I almost thought also something from Xavier Dolan. Again. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I I don't. I think you'd as soon as I was putting together this decade list, mm-hmm. I didn't even have to think about number one, in the same way that you didn't. Mm-hmm. I put, I put my number one there, and then let everything else fall into place after it, and it never moved. So I understand when you said you put that one there, yeah. and then did everything else. And that's how it <laughs> is. If a film if a film grabs you, that's it. It's not going to let go. So no, yeah. And, and again, like I like like we've just like we've been talking about is that those one two threes are usually pretty firm, and then everything yeah. else is in flux. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. Marie, it's been fantastic talking to you about the 2010s. I think that we've given, I hope, I hope that for people, we've given them a lot to chew on, especially your, your list is just like, it's just outright amazing. Like you gave me so much to do, like so much things that I'm very excited to watch. Yeah. I've added a couple to my list as well. And also been prompted to do a few rewatches too. So this is true. It's always good talking about films. Yeah. <laughs> um, Marie, where can people find you on social media? I am on Twitter at ReasyPie, R-E-S-I-E-P-I-E, also on Letterboxd with the same name. That's probably the best. And also on the movie aisle. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I submit written stuff to Adam and he is very good and puts it up on the website. Absolutely. And um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram. The The handle is... Uh, th- 
the B movie podcast or B movie podcast, the letter B, the word movie, the word podcast all together. No lines, no dashes, no anything. You can also find my work on the movie aisle. Um, we're actually ramping up for some really, really interesting content in 2020. Um, I wanted to take the time to announce here and then we're, um, because it's coming up in the next few weeks. Um, Marie is actually launching a podcast herself. and i am so excited about this podcast guys you have no idea i i know that i've talked a lot about star wars but i'm a huge trekkie or trekker however you'd like to uh, you'd like to say it and marie has uh we've we've been talking about this for a bit and she's making the leap from not only writing about the uh writing about star trek with uh, kobayashi marie but she's now going to start podcasting about star Star Trek, specifically about the new Star Trek series I hope that everybody is excited about, which is Picard. Yay! Make it so. <laughs> exactly. And there's going to be a lot of surprises. I'm going to let Marie talk to you about that on her podcast and how it's going to work. Um, you guys, I I think you guys are in for a real treat because I've heard what she has, more like I have. I have a of course, because I'm the editor-in-chief of the movie aisle, I have a, some un- understanding, and I'm going to be producing the podcast, uh, you know, just doing some edits for her, and uh, it will be posting weekly over the next 10 weeks as it premieres. So I think that you guys are going to be in for a real big treat. Yep. Get the Earl Grey ready. Lots of it, please. <laughs> and not that American washed out stuff. I mean, like the truly dark, dark English tea. That's almost like coffee. (laughs) With that, guys, thank you for listening. It's been a fantastic time talking with Marie. And, of course, she will be back um, on the B-Movie podcast. I can guarantee it because we love her voice here and we love what she talks about. And especially because she she, she's not going to stand for anything that she doesn't like. And she's going to tell us the way it is. And we love that, (laughs) especially because we need that and also because like when she loves something she loves something and it's genuine and i love that oh well you know me what's what's the point in coming on a podcast if you're not going to say what you think absolutely (laughs) (laughs) and with that guys we'll talk to you soon thanks adam bye bye Gotta run, gotta run, gotta run And make it and die